Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Miniatures Monthly. My name is Chris Thurston and as ever I'm joined by Tom Senior. Good day. Hello Tom. Hello. Feels like it hasn't been as long as usual since we've uh, meeting up this Indeed. month. Indeed. I think we've, we, yeah, we've brought things forward a little bit, but not a lot because we've been so sort of like chain, we've been late so many times in a row <laughs> right. that even being slightly less late than normal. Feels like a novelty, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. So yeah, we're going to like, hopefully this will get us back on an even keel and we're also recording a little bit differently this time we're recording in an evening for once rather mm. than after an entire afternoon of playing big games of warhammer yeah see if you can detect it in our energy levels throughout the episode <laughs> well do you reckon they'll be higher or lower don't know it's an experiment indeed yeah but this is because we played a lot of warhammer yesterday which we will find out about a little bit later yep uh, when we get to it but yeah so i also suspect that because warhammer fest is this coming weekend oh, or God, next like, weekend wait, i think it's next weekend I think it's a 13, weekend 16. soon yeah it's coming that means that there's probably going to be another big old news tornado yeah it feels like the i don't know deep can releases are kind of coming to their sort of three-quarter stage or whatever and there's gonna yeah. need to be a new wave of announcements after that presumably uh, oof, a new wave new, oh no because you said you said uh you did one earlier as well i know i did there's basically so there's this no is one of the things it. that appeals to me about the ideneth deepkin range is that the ocean is such an unavoidable source of puns it's gonna happen i'm afraid like yeah. um uh i'm not gonna skip too far ahead but i did play against ideneth deepkin army recently yeah. as did you did. and uh, my opponent asked me uh, do you have any splash spells? And I went like, ha, good one. He looked at me like, what? <laughs> um, Pun rejected. Indeed. So yeah, so it's a bit of actually a, at least in terms of the, on the Warhammer front, actually relatively quiet month for news. Mm. Um, last month, I know we talked about the kind of reveal of the Deepkin. Um, and now they're kind of halfway through coming out. Like I think they're, they're coming out very slowly. <laughs> it's like yeah. a month for the entire range to come out. It's like a couple of boxes a week at the moment. I think we're getting the giant turtles next week. Mm-hmm. And then I think they're like a 70 pound kit. Quite I think that's huge. the, I think that's the last of it. Yeah. This weekend, or maybe it isn't it. So this weekend is the, uh, the Isharan who are the kind of wizards and priests. Oh yes. So they're kind of on foot heroes basically. Mm. And the Achillean King, which is the guy who riding a big seahorse. Yeah, he's cool. Um, and then next week is the, the turtle and maybe the shark. The shark chariot. People don't know what this range is. This is going to make it sound incredible, but yeah. The eels, are they out yet? No. So the missing, because yeah. if, yeah, so it is, it is very drips and drabsy at the moment, which is mm. kind of, you know, I wonder if it might have made a bigger splash mm-hmm. had, um, <laughs> had it, uh, all come out at once. But, you know, bits and bobs have come out. And I sort of on a whim picked up the book. So maybe that's something we can, we can discuss. I just showed it to you, Tom. Mm. So you could have a look because partly because I'm, I really do love the models and I like, I, I, you know, I'm committed to my chain pile at the moment, but given that a, a battle force box around Christmas is probably likely. I wouldn't actually rule Ideneth out for me as yeah, a future yeah. army because I really like, now that I know the fiction and stuff as well, like I really like a lot about them. Mm. Um, I feel very, it's really nice to have a bit like the Caradren, like a new army, like not, not a re- refresh or something, yeah, totally. but like in the Stormcaster new army as well, but oh, they're a couple of years old now. Like they feel like uh, everyone knows what they are. They can't be that surprising in these days. Well, but, it could be. We can get to that as well. Well, that's true. <laughs> Though even then, like, and like a new Stormcast chamber, 
you, you, they're not going to get away from those big units and those big shapes and those big stompy bases. You know, no. there's just there's a type stormcaster that you, you're never going to see anything weird. Yeah, and, and it's nice to have. You know, like I think. I enjoy the process by which old fantasy ideas get kind of turned on the head and remade and mm. in this case sunk to the bottom of the sea. Mm. Um, so yeah, I was thinking about it. So I picked up the book and that also, I was also doing it partly because, um, it feels like it's been like this ever since the beginning of Age of Sigma, but it feels like they're learning or Games Workshop is learning what an Age of Sigma battle tone book mm. should be constantly. Yeah. That like, you know, as soon as, you know, proper, you know, the disciples of Zinch, I think was the one that brought in like proper, uh, allegiance abilities and things beyond what was in the books previously. Or maybe it was the Sylvaneth book. Like it's, but they sort of, it's always these ideas come in, but they come in from a kind of wonky angle. They don't quite have all the string that ties them together yet. Mm-hmm. And then the next battle time comes in and sets another set of precedents that kind of then continues. And this book, and maybe legions of Infigash, but I think it's more obvious with this because it's a new range. Mm-hmm. Um, from a sort of top to bottom level kind of struck me as like, oh, this, well, not to get ahead, but like this feels like a battle tome that is designed to be compatible with a new version of AOS or a new phase in the game's life, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like it's sort of future proofed in a way that, you know, which is partly like the rules being missing from the back if they are really going to be updated. Mm. But it's also things like, um, like, uh, it's got very clear kind of like a clear, very clear system of rules for, I think this is in Daughters of Cain as well for like, um, having specific rules for different enclaves, which are the equivalent of chapters or storm hosts or yeah. whatever you call them. Um, it has very few battalions that are much more generic battalions being like, you know, the collections of war scrolls into a single lump, mm. which suggests a change in direction for how battalions will be factored into army composition in the future, given they've been such a problem for the game in some ways. Yeah. Um, has a new, all the war scrolls have new ways of, um, forming, uh, describing how command groups work, for example. And some of this stuff doesn't really change how the game works, but it feels like housekeeping. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it feels like someone's taken a critical look at how these rules were being written and updated it without changing fundamentally the fundamentals of the game. Yeah, there are a few kind of key almost wording changes you see in the recent battle tomes. Um, the phrase holy within is a mm. very important one. Uh, so you have area of effect abilities uh, that can only affect units wholly within the radius, which has um, not been the case. It's always been the unit within, which meant that the edge of a base could be within that and you could daisy chain the unit off, you know, half a foot away from the actual radius from there. Uh, and that's what's led to a lot of kind of unusual and um, weird kind of army. If you got to the the board of a like a really high level age sigma game you're likely to see like long lines of troops just kind of screening off the backfield or just kind of being you know having one yeah. unit within the, an important radius and the rest of them kind of daisy chaining off across the board uh, and there's there is actually like a, a fair amount of skill to positioning in that way it's just a weird way for armies to behave on the tabletop if you're yeah. if you're looking at a war game whereas wholly within forces units to be more co- coherent cohesive and within you know stay close to each other as though they're forming blocks in an actual army yeah exactly uh, so even that even that's that's just like a basic bit of housekeeping that i'd almost wish to see retroactively applied to the other battle teams well i kind of wonder about this because i mean I'm, I'm really excited for whatever's coming next I, at this point i'm 99.9 percent certain that there is a new box coming mm. um that there is that we'll see some big stuff for age of sigma i don't know whether that will qualify as a new edition or if they'll call it that or if you know what i mean mm. if that'll be a semantic distinction don't know but this stuff feels to me like it gives some weight to that idea and also that um 
some of the specific ideas. I don't know if we mentioned this last month, but one of the specific ideas that I'd heard as a rumor for what might be included in a new edition, which I really like, is the notion that AOS might gain a kind of a similar system to like command points and stratagems mm. that are already in 40k. But in place of stratagems, which are the kind of things you spend your command points to do, uh, it would use the existing command traits mm. of units. So uh, that's the, you know, if you're, if this model, if this hero is your general, then they gain this command trait in addition to inspiring presence, which is the battle shock one. Right. The weakness of that system currently is that, you know, you are, it's a, it's a trade-off that doesn't always seem to like guide you very much. There's a lot of pressure on, um, you probably, there's probably a model that makes obvious sense to be the general of your army. And there's a couple of different things putting pressure on that, including does it make sense that this model is my general? Yeah. Right. Like I sort of feel that with, with, uh, Zinch, like, if my Lord of Change isn't the commander of that army, who is? <laughs> like, mm. it's clearly the most important, most powerful sorcerer on the battlefield. He doesn't take orders, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, that choice feels forced, but also Lord of Change has a very good command ability. So that's, you know, that's kind of decision is easy. But that leaves a lot of like command abilities on the table that will never see use because those models will never be your general. Yeah. If that makes sense. Corn has this a lot because mm. Bloodbound have loads of really cool heroes and they have loads of command abilities, but you always have to, you probably just pick the obvious one. Yeah. And you leave, and it's, it's basically loads of rules that are just left on the table every game you play, if mm. that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, I wonder if um, this is something that this is something feasibly the General's Handbook this year could add. Yeah. So, so a big problem for earlier ranges. So Stormcast, for example, there aren't that many command command abilities in the armies at all. Like uh, the uh, there are a few that are very good. So there's um, the Lord Celestial Dracoth has a 24 inch bubble where which makes people immune to battle shock. Um, and that makes it very tempting to take. I think the Lord's Elephant on foot also has a different command ability. But apart from that, all the other heroes don't have command abilities at all. Uh, but in the way that the General's Handbook 2017 gave everyone allegiance abilities, perhaps a new General's Handbook could give armies new command traits yeah, for their heroes or something like that, or perhaps make it a more interesting and flexible system. I think this is what is an interesting thing, because there's sort of a, a weird opportunity cost thing. And this is something that applies to Age of Sigmar a lot, especially as it currently exists, where... So presumably those those heroes have to be pointed, given points, mm. that take the strength of their command abilities into account because those command abilities are part of the scroll, Yeah. right? However, being a general or not being a general isn't something that is mm. acknowledged within the point system. So they're not all created equal in that regard. Like yeah. a weak command trait might as well not be there. Mm. Like, And that's one of the issues. And this also applies to artifacts and things as well, where often there's a correct choice, really. Like yeah, just one definitely. that's better than the rest. Yeah. And, and I kind of like... I like these ideas that bring a kind of in-game resource system, like a mana pool or something like that, to allow you to kind of temporarily use those things. So you dip a bit deeper into the rules that have been written. Like, for example, if there was a way for me to cycle through spells a bit, mm. because I pick a spell for each of my sorcerers, and I'm obviously going to pick the good ones. And there's a lot of weird sort of thematic janky things in that in those spell lists yeah. that just aren't like really effective enough to be worth using over something that just does loads of mortal wounds or something. Mm, sure, sure. But if occasionally it was possible to like spend a point to cycle a spell out so that I can get around the rule of one in a key situation or something, that might result. Basically, I just want to see the weird rules used more mm. and anything that allows you to fairly access them, I think is really, really cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, Staunch Defender is a classic example of uh, an ability that's so good that you just don't take any other abilities for yeah. Stormcast. Staunch Defender, basically, uh, if you 
I haven't charged that turn. Um, you and uh, your hero and every enemy within six inches of the hero gets just gets plus one save, which and is air friendly within six inches. Friendly, yeah. yeah. So it's just brilliant. It's just really, really good. Um, and there's no reason you take it like other things that are quirkier and, and weirder, unless you're doing narrative stuff. I guess that's the. Yes, might, true. Spirit that. of the game versus yeah. reality thing. The reason I brought up the command trait thing is something that I noticed in the Eidneth, uh, where their command abilities are written when they have them. Mm. Um, several of them, and I don't, I haven't done all my homework to check if this has always been the case, but it really struck me as notable. A lot of the command abilities specify if, specify if this unit is your general. Mm. So they have some command abilities that specify you also have to be the general in order to use the command ability, which would be redundant wording under the current system, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because at the moment, only generals can use command abilities. Mm. So why would it say if this unit is your general? Right. Um, and in fact, one of them, the sort of the lady uh, ocean wizard, the tidecaster, hmm. she has an inherent ability that works if she is your general, but isn't called a command ability. It just isn't listed as one. It's just an if this model is your general right. ability. Interesting. So that suggests for me a bit of a division in what a command trait is mm. and what a general ability is. Because mm. that, that that army has both. And in some cases they're exclusive to generals and in some cases they're not. And in some cases they're not even listed as command abilities. Yeah. So like that's just an interesting kind of glimpse at the future, I think. Yeah. Interesting. From a rules perspective, the other thing that stood out to me and this, I, um, so everyone's, you know, everyone knows like the, this are the, um, the Eidneth can place currently a shipwreck, a gloom tide shipwreck. Uh, that offers like a six up, uh, ignore save to air friendlies and has potential to attack enemies with little fish. Mm. Um, and this is referred to as an etheric vo- vortex. And I realized something and I had a proper like, oh shit thing that made a lot of things fall into place. So etheric vortex, um, if you, I assumed that the name of the Ideneth ability was etheric vortex. And then the shipwreck was an example of that. Mm. That's not the case. If you look at the wording for it everywhere, including on the store page, etheric vortexes are not an identity given thing. Right. This is their specific one of them. Right. I see. So what I think might happen, I think a lot of existing army specific magic terrain, mm. like Wildwoods and the scary Nurgle tree, will probably get retconned into being etheric vortexes hmm. which will become a consistent game system rather than a um a, you know a kind of weird bespoke thing that lots of different armies have their own version of right this i think would be the most sensible explanation for whatever the fuck that purple moon is right so here, this is a complete guess this is my complete uh, guess you know that new magic system they were teasing hmm. i wonder if this is that I wonder if that's what this, how this works. This would be the obvious way to fix people's unhappiness with how the Bailwind Vortex works. Cause it is literally a vortex. Mm. Like what if that became, a, that became a, a, you know, I can imagine a system where armies have access to a selection of generic pieces of magical terrain that you can choose to take and deploy and incorporate into the battle setup. Mm. And then certain armies have exclusive ones like Nurgle, Sylvaneth and Eidneth. That would make complete sense to me. I'm completely guessing. But it's as soon as I realized that Etheric Vortex is a description of a type of thing. It's in the book, the way it describes the Gloomtide Shipwreck. It's that you get access to these, and by the way, this is your faction-specific one. Makes me think that it's a much broader category of things. Yeah, that's interesting. It'd be interesting if they chose Go Dark Roots, because um, starting with the Sylvaneth Wildwoods, there's there's been all sorts of rules shimmying required to actually get them to work on the battlefield, because... 
you can't guarantee how much terrain is going to be on the battlefield. And as we ran into this uh, in our games yesterday, like people placing large pieces of terrain next to other pieces of terrain, blocking areas off, that mm. kind of stuff, um, feels like it could end up being quite a fiddly direction. Um, because blocking off areas of the battlefield is kind of an interesting... I mean, the, the Vortex can do it, the Bellwind Vortex can do it, the looks like the Shipwrecks can do it as well. And is that great to just like block off whole sides of a flank or something if you happen to have a certain amount of terrain i mean i think it's an interesting one because i think at the moment like aos's terrain rules in terms of like they're, they're okay and they can be interesting strategically like the rolling to see what each piece of terrain do hmm. but they're quite confusing they're easily the layer of the game that you can lose and not lose loads of the experience yeah um and also quite often they feel very disconnected from the flavor of a game hmm. right like, this piece of rubble happens to be deadly. I can kind of mind's eye. This piece of rubble is inspiring. This piece of rubble that looks the same is mystical. Like, that doesn't really, like, doesn't have, like, flavor hmm. with an A. You know what I mean? Like, it's not bouncing. Uh, the story of those games doesn't bounce off that system for me. Whereas a system where you had some generic terrain that were just line that's like, there were hills and ruins and stuff. And then you have a few things that you plonk down that really do something. And that's very specific to that thing. I think I'd prefer that system overall. I agree with you that if you end up mashing both systems together and you end up with hills that are magic next to shipwrecks that are magic next to magic forests, that gets overloaded with special rules for yeah. just walking around a corner. And if, but, uh, if you look at the last few releases, so Death have, um, so Nurgle have their normal route, normal route more. Feculent normal. Sorry, feculent normals. Uh, the, um, Legions of the Gash introduces, uh, grave sites. Yeah, true. And now Ideneth has the shipwreck. It does feel like that's a staple of all of this year's releases have been sort of terrain pieces, though grave sites technically are points on the battlefield they're not supposed to be like actual crypts or anything they just it's a point where the, the dead come out of the earth but it's definitely a way of you know it's, it's definitely a kind of board control uh power that's being given to every faction this year so far i quite like that because like one of the most sort of subtly interesting mechanics in x-wing is the asteroid placement phase where right. you take it in turns at your opponent to kind of arrange where the obstacles are going to be, mm. which maybe was intended originally as a sort of form of random distribution and is now regarded as basically turn zero is like, this makes a big difference and you have to really think about it and you have yeah. to think about which asteroids you bring and how you're going to place them and because they can play against you and for you mm. and, and that kind of thing. Um, I like that kind of thing, the additional level of like board planning, particularly because this might encourage people to use one of AOS's actual rules that I very rarely see actually used, which is, the roll-off to determine who deploys first also lets you pick which side of the board you want. Right. And these terrain features, these etheric vortexes, go down before that. So there's that, I think that's really interesting strategically. Mm. Like, you have to place your shipwrecks or whatever, not knowing what deployment zone you're going to get. Yeah. That should be a really cool strategic kind of uh, depth multiplier, if that makes sense. Mm. If, if If those things mean more, I think. I think what I'm going to do is buy three more Night Heraldos. Oh God! And then the oh, good no. times begin. <laughs> oh God! Yeah, actually, I was thinking that the other day. Like, yep. just oh man, it's starting to look a lot like Dootmus. <laughs> <It is, yeah. laughs> the Dootmus is back, everybody. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's gonna be the worst. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's gonna be three honking. I mean, everything's gonna be near terrain, especially very large train pieces like those ships. Like that is Her- Herald or Catnip right there. Th- those it. ship rules are 
like so there are definitely things about the Ideneth battle tome that I think will get abused mm. those ship rules are crazy loose mm. so the the ship model which is super cool comes in two detachable halves and the book actually specifies that you can treat that as two different pieces right. or as one piece so you can have two massive ones yeah. right so when it says that the Ideneth can deploy two ships or two pieces of etheric terrain at the mm. start that can be basically up to four. It's like, I mean, obviously they, they have to go together. Have to go together. But so, nonetheless, yeah. it's either two massive pieces or two small pieces. But that's a huge they're difference. Enormous. They're huge as well. Like, yeah. You could block off all objectives. Well, that, so right? we'll get to this. Mm. There is a rule about how far away from other trees of train they need to be. Right, okay. So it is possible they wouldn't fit. Okay. Uh, that, we'll get to that. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so that's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting kind of distinction I, i'd like to see where it goes i'm kind of willing to entertain it mm. uh, and you should be willing to entertain it because the, the magic <laughs> yeah. fucking dupe man will win you every game from uh, then on. so good I've, i mean there's a whole there's a second variant of that model i've not painted yet so that'd be an obvious purchase i just love the idea of these sort of slippery haunted sea elves kind of like emerging from the mists next to their gl- glooming uh shipwreck you know swarms of uh, ethereal fish and then just a man with a big horn goes honk <laughs> honk honk until they go away <laughs> <laughs> stormcats win again <laughs> um speaking of which um there's a little bit of, like there's a we should talk about recently there's a i think the, well maybe even the most recent malign portent short story yeah gives our first glimpse at what's what's happening with them big gold wizards yeah so it's always been implied that the reforging process is painful um but there's a, a story on the malign portent site which of course I think it's called apotheosis or the apotheosis chamber or something like that. Or the pain of apotheosis. Pain of apotheosis. And, uh, it's basically, um, a blow by blow, uh, literally hammer blow by hammer blow of how, uh, a soul is taken up back into Azure and reforged from the perspective of a new type of Stormcast character, someone with a stave who is able to manipulate etheric energy and, uh, specifically signals. the magic of Azure. The magic of Azure. Ma- the word magic is used. So, yeah. 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 So, and, and he's able to, uh, it's basically, this is a story about a tortured soul who's been sent back down to fight uh in uh his old homeland and is sick of it he's really just sick to the sick to his golden teeth with uh going back down over and over and over again and uh he tries to break out of the reforging chamber and and his spirit tries to escape and is wrangled back by this stormcast wizard basically or, or warlock or whatever you might want to call him ghostbuster ghostbuster very ghostbuster image he's he's holding his stave out and zapping this uh kind of ghost and trying it's to like a lightning geist i think it's called yeah lightning geist that's right uh and eventually gets him uh in, into this room these giant golden doors slam shut and you hear this really frantic hammering as the six <laughs> smiths just like beat the shit out of uh, his soul until it becomes a stormcast again he walks out and it's just like yeah i'm fine yep <laughs> it's like it's the robocop basically like mm. he just comes up and he's like ready to serve there's an interesting so there's a few interesting connotations of this one is obviously the stormcast wizard thing but the other is that so previously it's been thought that like losing your memories and things is just sort of part of the process mm. but the notion that he sort of actively like burns the the emotion he burns the memories that are causing the spirit to rebel out of it yeah in order to get it back in the chamber yeah that's a much more that's a much darker mm. yeah, concept of what's going on it's just a kind of horrendous conditioning basically um which it kind of reminds me of the space marines as well mm. like uh it's, it's there's always these parallels between space marines and, and stormcast and uh the space marines are basically treated to all sorts of psychological procedures to basically make them completely uh, loyal to the Empire. well this is the thing right like brothers. ostensibly space marines are recruited from 
like Necromunda style hive worlds and yeah. criminal gangs and people on death row and, you know, like death worlds where everyone's a feral Viking man. Mm. And they all come out on the other side of that process as the most British man imaginable. <laughs> so <laughs> they clearly, all come out as Mark Strong. They all come out as Mark Strong yeah. on the other side of it. So clearly something's going on, yes. right? You go in one end as whoever, like a Mad Max character, mm. and you come out the other side as Mark Strong. Yeah. And there's a very painful process in between. Yeah. And uh, basically this is just the magical version of that that Sigmar applies to his his heroes, it seems. I think that's... So that's the thing that we can maybe return to the Iron Earth with as well. Mm. So there's... I get... It feels to me like they're kind of um, tonally course-correcting AOS as it deepens. Mm. Like they're getting... They're changing things about the setting. They're kind of uh, making... And a lot of that stuff's good. And it's it's such an interesting setting. It's becoming a more interesting setting. It's become, it remains this kind of mad high fantasy world where anything's possible. Mm. But they're getting more specific detail. And I was impressed by the Adonis book, like how much new art there is and how many kind of specific details. There's a spread dedicated to whirlways, which are these undersea realm gates that the Idaneth use mm. and where they all are and which enclave uses which ones, what they look like. Mm. And that's a lot more specific detail than you normally get about how the realms work. Yeah, that's cool. You know, what they look like, you know, what kind of, it gives you ideas for like where your army could live, mm. which is the sort of thing you usually get from 40K, like descriptions of planets. Yeah. However, there are things about it that do feel like this works in 40K, so... Let's move it across, mm. right? Like, I'm okay for the Stormcast to have a dark side, but I actually quite like that they were a bit more human mm. than Space Marines. Yeah. Like, from the start, they had a bit more humanity to them. And the idea that they can lose that is interesting, but I'd like, you know what I mean? Like, as they go down this path, I want them to avoid quite so much kind of, um, so quite so many parallels. Yeah, there's there's some interesting stuff to be done with this. Like, you could get Stormcast to um, basically have the mental discipline to steel themselves against the reforging process, almost in a way that you know, if you're aware that part, problematic quote unquote problematic parts of you get stripped out, then you can condition yourself to think a, in a certain way, almost like a Big Brother double think style mental mm. gymnastics. And that, so there's interesting kind of things that opens up for like Stormcast cults and the way that different Stormcasts react to Sigmar and kind of have, you know, because it is a two-way relationship as well. Like, uh, this is the thing with Vanders Hammerhand and, and Sigmar, that it is, it does go both ways. He does talk to his Stormcast, they talk to him, and they can react to him. And a lot of them are kind of wild and, you know, a lot of them are Vanguard who are actually just in the realms and they're not getting reforged that often. Yeah, true. So there's, so there's, there's still a kind of interesting... Uh, there's a lot of interesting things to be investigated regarding the distance between Sigmar and his various subjects, which can't really happen with the Emperor because the Emperor is just a kind of a skeleton. A skeleton yeah. yeah, and that's changed a bit with Guilliman and his return. But still, uh, Space Marines are ultimately just blindly loyal to the Emperor, and that's that's mm. the part of their character that can never change. Where that, it feels like that's, there could be more flexibility with, with that's that. That's That's an interesting point. I think the other thing that occurred to me is that one most interesting things for me in the Ideneth book about their fiction mm. is. So it could be that they're really, really ramping up for a Slanesh release yeah. this year, both in the sense of fiction, <laughs> like he might escape, but also in terms of like the range and stuff, because mm. Slanesh is mentioned a lot in that book. Yeah. Um, so much so actually that the thing it reminds me the most of is the Eldar. Mm. Like, so like elves in Warhammer Fantasy have always had a relationship with Slanesh. Like it's, there's always been that kind of a, the excess aspect of them. Yeah, and yeah. given that they've now really fundamentally merged dark elves Dark, el- dark elves and high elves into one mm, race, basically yeah. one complicated race, which is much more interesting. Yeah. Um, but what that means is that because all elves have kind of, well, one really crucial point is that Slanesh didn't just eat all of the elves that were around when, uh, the world that was, was destroyed. He ate every elf ever <laughs> apart from any that specifically escaped 
by other means. Hmm. Um, he, he uh, Slanesh even raided the underworlds to eat every elf that had ever died. So, like, that's a lot of elves. And that means that basically every new elf, everyone that's been rescued from Slanesh and remade, has a kind of shared, um, sort of trauma, hmm. uh, to do with Slanesh. And it's an inversion of 40k, because these are elves that are all born from Slanesh, rather than it being the birth of Slanesh that destroys the Eldar. But it's very, there are a lot of parallels in yeah. terms of, like, the Eidneth are basically, like, there's some stuff I really like about how they've handled this. So, like, um, the Eidneth are basically, like, they, they do some bad things, and they steal souls, and they, they, they do, they steal souls to survive. Um, but their sort of, a big key aspect of them is that, they went into seclusion and specifically to the bottom of the sea as a kind of sensory deprivation exercise hmm. designed to shut them off from feelings, from sight and sound and smell. All of the kind of Slaneshi excess, like the opposite of Slaneshi excess is going to the bottom of the sea to hide and in the darkness yeah. and to not want to feel anymore because they're, they're, you know, they're kind of, they don't just escape from Slaneshi and are fine. They're all marked by it. There's a thing that new elves suffer from a condition called Malachi, which I think might be a kind of direct Malachith kind of yeah, yeah. like allusion that is when they kind of just revert into a kind of feral hedonistic state. Mm. Um, and there's this notion that, um, and it's, it's, it's written throughout the rules. And I really like this idea that like they're kind of the, the dark secret of the new elf factions is that they're all only sort of, you know, they're all like a few slips of discipline away from lapsing into mm. this kind of um, slaneshi state that they can't escape anymore because it's fundamentally part of them, which I think is a really interesting idea. Like yeah. on the a Path to Glory campaign table, um, you know, you roll like you can roll for like what kind of rewards your champion gets. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there, there's always like a really bad result if you get a double one. Mm. I think for the Stormcast, it's like really scarred by reforging. Yeah. And for Chaos, it's like, you just turned into a Chaos spawn, sorry. <laughs> um, for the Eidneth, it's, they just go Slaneshi again. And they, you, you get to keep them, but someone else has to be your new general and they never get to get glory ever again. Oh, wow. And you lose glory in the campaign. Yeah, yeah. Like as, as a consequence. Interesting. Which is an interesting idea and it brings that into the rules. Hmm. But I, I like that idea that like, it's no longer like we have the, the fetish elves and the everybody else. Hmm. It's like all elves have kind of fucked up now. Yeah. Um, like, and the, um, there's a lot of sort of interesting, kind of detail around that for the Eidneth and kind of how their society, because the idea is they've been around for millennia now, yeah. like in the, in the mortal realms and how their society has changed and been shaped by, by that. And the fact that they have to consume souls to survive. There's some other very Eldari things like they, they store the souls of their own dead in coral reefs, mm. um, which, um, so the, the Eidolons of Mathlan, the, the flight, the flying tidal wave wizard people are actually not real beings. Mm. They're projections of, a bunch of souls kept in a coral reef that they yeah. get expended at once. And the last form that soul remembers is the old dead elven god of the sea. Cause Mathlan is dead. Mathlan, like mm. Cain, was eaten by Slanesh. Mm. Um, so they're basically a kind of fantasy version of a Wraith Knight. Yeah. Um, which is interesting because like, you know, that means they're not like, even though they're the biggest model in the range, they're not your general. Mm. Like they're not your so obvious general forces of nature, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's sort of like flavors of stuff that have come before, but there's a lot of kind of interesting kind of where's this going next type deal. A lot more information about like techless and what he's like now. Mm. He controls basically this 
laser that exposes the truth but is terrifying right <laughs> yeah uh, and that's what scares the eye into hiding at the bottom of the sea mm. or uh, maybe last thing on them who do you think their natural enemy has been for the last couple of millennia who are they fighting other than each other and sea monsters uh what down at the bottom of the ocean yeah mm. silence who's their favorite enemy basically nothing mm. well they need to go raiding souls so i imagine they'd be quite predatory and they'd be going after whatever the weakest faction they could find is near sure okay so not not in terms of who they're prey because they do prey on everybody right who is there who is the only race to have ever actually like threatened them on their own turf i'll put it that way um could be zinch i suppose doesn't go down there it's great who is it it's only skaven submarines what (laughs) (laughs) are they mentioned in the book yep Wow. Okay. So Skaven using submarines and the hollowed out corpses of dead Leviathans oh, to sink that. to the bottom of the sea and crash into Ideneth cities. Oh, wow. Okay. So basically, <laughs> um, there's a really good bit in the, in the battle tome sort of implied where basically, um, the Ideneth managed to stay secret for ages mm. and then hide during the, the, the age of chaos. At one, at one point, however, they raid for souls and the Slanesh keeper of secrets tracks them down and f- discovers them basically and that's then a secret that, that keeper of secrets has and mm. being a keeper of secrets it tells everybody <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, specifically uh, it's you know talking about and keeping this for himself then archaeon traps it and forces it to tell archaeon mm. that there are these elves under the sea um at which point archaeon tasks the skaven with doing this right okay. like solving this issue yeah, of like yeah. find find out what they are so the skaven just invents submarines and they they start also tunneling through the seabed and like sometimes just coming up in the wrong place and drowning <laughs> <laughs> it's really good they're um uh in dread fleet was it called there's the old mm. um a really beautiful one-off box set that games workshop did the skaven vessel in that was actually kind of a, a hollowed out corpse of a an old weird sea whale. So yeah. it's cool to see that kind of coming back. Yeah. The, and and the then fiction. sort of mixed with like plan sky, kind of mm. mad Skaven submersible craft. Yeah. Like I kind of, lo- I love that idea. I yeah. That's it. really, really, really cool. Um, there's a picture in the book of, um, of them fighting, um, Skaven mm. in their own cities. <laughs> and it's like, it's just a mad, like one of the enclaves is based on one of the one, the one, one of the ones is based in the realm of beasts, I think is based on the back of like a, a absolutely colossal sea creature that kind yeah. of moves along the seabed. Mm. And then Skaven got into it and they're always constantly, so that, that sea creature, which is also a city has like an under city now inside full of Skaven monster. inside mm. the monster, which is like, that's pure AOS for me where it's yeah, like yeah. totally an old Warhammer idea where it's like the Skaven luck beneath, mm. but it's like they came down in little adorable little diving suits or something. <laughs> like, How do they fight then? Are they in little, you know deep dive suits i think when they're in the cities they're okay yeah okay. but like because they like they they have a way of merging sea and air mm. that's one of the things they do because they right. do that to every battlefield they go on it's yeah, why they yeah. so that's the kind of fog that the ether sea, yeah. yeah um mm. which is weird like there's lots of like, descriptions of like when they get attacked like when a when a when Ideneth dies it's blood um they don't spill blood. Mm. It mists out of them as if they were underwater. Right. Which is a really like evocative image. Like mm. the fact that they, when they, you know, sometimes the victims just look like they're drowning and mm. they, they, they drown in air. It's kind of like, it's really cool kind of spooky yeah, ocean yeah. stuff. Nice. Spooky ocean stuff. Yeah. A lot of fish. Wow. Weird faction. It is a real weird faction. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, yeah. So yeah, I, I'd like to, I'd like to get a few, but I'm going to wait till current projects are resolved mm-hmm. and not in any rush. I don't think. 
we should talk about how our hobby months have been, I guess. Yeah, sure. Tell us what we've been painting or what we've been Yeah, well, what we've been painting, what we've been doing up until yesterday, which we can do as its own special thing. Yeah, sure, sure. Like, so, um, you and I played a game during the month rather than at the end of the month. Which That's is, very true, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Which I can't go blow by blow by it, but actually I was thinking it'd be interesting to talk about that as a, I, I feel that that game, um, was A, interesting, but also B, like, felt like the beginning of a new part of our campaign, actually. I think yeah. we're ready to kind of pull so the trigger the on next, that. The next right? phase, yeah. 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 Phase two. So we played a game, um, this was right at the end of, end of my importance as well. So the idea is that, you know, mm. the underworlds have opened and I made a mixed corn and zinch force so that I could use my, use both basically. Mm. And you had lots of stormcast, basically. Yeah. Pretty standard stormcast list, I think. And the sort of fiction for this is that like, I think the opening of those crypts and the return of all those souls, it was sort of my war queen leading corn and other and zinch and my ogre thaumaturge. Mm. So it has brought a lot of, people back to life including my Agro Thaumaturge who I've not played with until since the final game of our last campaign yeah. so as I'm concerned this is his escape from the underworld mm. basically and he's responsible for my army coming back in a big way um, and uniquely among games that we have played we drew we did it was close as well it was really it was very close lots of uh, lots of tense moments that could have gone either way as well it's yeah good, really interesting like um, game. um we had a really interesting um the reason we drew is because we used the open war cards mm. and we had an interesting twist where we had two sets of objectives yes and we each won one of them yeah so we both won a different game of age six <laughs> yeah at the same time um but yeah it was really cool like it was really cool to sort of mash up armies and it was very much an open play game and i think it's um, open play with points and not really worrying about battle line requirements yeah. and stuff and i think it it showed to me that like that totally works, I think, mm. with the right attitude. Yeah, you could obviously you could power game that, and it would be awful. But yeah, it, it, for for this, for what we wanted to do, it was perfect. Really. So basically, said Chris could have half and half armies, and daily disabilities would work for each of them independently. Which yeah. strictly in match play you can't do, but you know why not, right? I mean, you might as well do it, and it didn't prove to be overpowered at all. Yeah, anything. we should have some like house ruled some of that so that I could have. It basically means that Zinch isn't completely rubbish. Yeah, because like without the spell laws, I'm yeah, so yeah. limited for sure. But what it meant is, but I can't use I can't use Destiny dice on the corn stuff at all. Yeah. Like for that, you know, so they're kind mm. of dependent. You know, it matters which army each is in. Likewise, yeah. the corn bloodbound kind of abilities, the blood tied, um, uh, had to go the other way as well. Mm. And it's really interesting. Like I, to be honest, I can't remember hu- huge amounts about specific things that happen now because it's been a couple of weeks. But yeah. it was nice to get all those models on the table. I had to have the the most cowardly manticore who hid at the back for the entire game oh, yeah. to watch for vanguard hunters mm. and then to his credit did fuck up a lot of vanguard hunters he did he did well he did um but nonetheless given we had this idea of him as this kind of like craven knight who didn't get taken up by sigma this might be why <laughs> <laughs> yeah so we're working on the idea that um he was part of a a group of uh you know of I don't know, a squadron of... The way I think about warriors. it is like a kind of knightly order. Knightly order. Like, I imagine that during the Age of Myth, there's mm. this knightly order of, like, manticore riding knights that are genuinely a force for good. Yeah. And then when chaos invades, um, most of them die and get blasted up to Sigmar to mm. be reforged, apart from this guy. Who's who carrying n- at the back of the board. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Centuries later. And is now sort of trying to gloss that that ever happened by positioning himself as a kind of heavy hitter for hire for, for roaming chaos warbands. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which I really like the idea of, but yeah, he's secretly a dick. But this does tie into somebody you've been working on. That's very true, because of course, uh, 
those uh his fellow knightly order bins out of sigma uh and i figured that um, indeed the rider of my star drake could be one of those uh knights but one of, like they do he might be even the master of that order like, in, to get to be given a dragon that big it's uh, a very big dragon. It's a very big dragon. I think you'd have to be quite impressive to Sigma. Um, and you have to apparently go through a load of trials to actually get a Star Drake and do a load of, you know, non-specific You have to grind a lot, get activities. a lot of rep. <laughs> Lots of, uh, you know, uh, trust games uh, with the Star Drake. <laughs> <laughs> corporate yeah, retreats. Imagine doing, like, trust fall. Like, <laughs> yeah, trust fall with the Star Drake. <laughs> yeah. Like that guy can't get reforged. So, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, that's been my hobby project for the entire month as well. But... Uh, um, which we'll talk about later, I suppose. But yeah, I, I figured that in, in, for the new phase of our kind of narrative campaign, uh, this Star Drake Rider is going to be probably the gen- the main general, the overall leader of the effort. He might not be in all the battles, but he's going to be kind of in a, a you know, a, a camp somewhere directing the Firestorm campaign. Mm. Uh, and Do you think that, like, he's been brought in to kind of like replace Tantris? I think that's, I think Tantris is benched a little bit. I think, uh, that's my, uh, he, Tantris is like an incredible warrior and he's really fierce. And he's very good for, you know, when you need a big blunt hammer to go kill a thing. And he could, you could put him in charge of 10,000 warriors to go relentlessly charge a, a fortress over and over again. And Tantris now is, is capable of doing that, but he's not capable necessarily of doing much against the Zinchin plot or he's not going to be able to, he's not going to have the, the wherewithal after so many reforgings to be able to undo uh, the knots of chaos in a, in a difficult scenario, a guerrilla warfare scenario where territory is changing hands all the time. So you might see Tantris coming in occasionally, just like a hammer blow, but uh, Sigma needs smarter heroes. He needs to, something to a lot on. subtler. <laughs> yeah. a colossal dragon. Yes, exactly. A colossal dragon, but with a smarter, hopefully a smarter guy on top. And um, I've used the, um, I've done a heads up with him. So the uh, the leader of the Vanguard uh, Hunter box set, the the Prime has a really cool head and it just looks absolutely perfect on the top of Star Drake. So I'm going to go with the name for him and the backstory and, you know, have him properly be an important character in, in, in our campaign to come. Uh, but I'm also working on um, some other heroes, so like a, a brother and sister. And one is um, a Knight Zephyros and the other one is... Uh, the, an errant quester, which is a model you can only get from Warhammer World. He's like a really unusual kind of, kind of model. And they're going to be like, and his whole thing is that he can pick a, an enemy here on the battlefield and duel them and be good at killing them. Or he can absorb, uh, wounds for another hero next to him. So the idea is the brother and sister and he's kind of there to absorb wounds and she's there to assassinate people. And, uh, so that's kind of Sigmar's cutting scalpel that he's sending into this situation to try and eradicate dangerous rogues each elements in this place yeah because we're kind of building towards like i guess in a kind of um and we, well, we are now building towards a kind of resurgence of those armies my mm-hmm. my notion is that the ogre is kind of the link that he kind of gets out from the underworld previously having been unable to die until he got really really lightninged hmm. um and is now back and kind of like um, re-encountering the sort of remains of that cult, that kind of like, you know, that kind of with the mark of that green flame and mm. that sort of like magic song and all but magic song makes it sound a little bit more benign than it is. Mm. Um, uh, like the kind of like music of the spheres that turns your entire civilization into gibbering horrors kind of thing. Mm. Um, and it's kind of like piecing that stuff back together, literally. And that that has resulted in the return of my Lord of Change and that these sort of armies are now building again towards some kind of, kind of what when we do the firestorm campaign like mm. continent spanning kind of clash um i'm going to get in touch with community people about this as well but this will also uh now that we've talked about this quite a bit like we can link this into things that are happening at the minis monthly meetup which is this coming weekend i believe yeah, awesome. so yeah yeah it's gonna be cool i think to kind of like give people the the basic kind of situation 
and let things develop, which is kind of me. Yeah, sort of. We're going to find some ways to let the community kind of feed back into our story and become part of the the phase two story we're going to try and collectively tell together yeah yeah so i'll put some information about this in, in the discord i think yeah that's we're ready cool. with it because like i don't think yeah but like yeah that's the idea is mm. that like this sort of phase two will be a bit more um uh collaborative i guess yeah um because yeah because i want this to sort of culminate in like when i finally finish them my zangor joined the army me gaining this big mortal contingent mm. is going to be a kind of cool change both for our games but also for the kind of dynamics of of that narrative power, yeah and I'm, I'm going to be moving into more vanguard hunters and um vanguard palador riders um because so i'm going to end up with a, a much more faster and more flexible force with a dragon admittedly uh at the helm of it but versus a more, kind of almost a more static infantry force so it's going to be a very different dynamic between our two and then uh throw into the mixed chimps uh death army so that's going to be the third element in our firestorm campaign and uh Given everything that's happened with my importance, the Legion's Nagash and Nagash's presence in the area, like the Warthogs are going to be operating in the area. There's going to be some like cool mix up with death as well. Yeah. And that's going to have some cool connotations of both of our armies as well. And I have like, and I'm also going to like, I'm treating my army for this as chaos, not necessarily Zinch. Yeah. So I, my little corn force will also make an appearance in this campaign as well. Mm, nice. Um, and then in the middle of it is like what I perceive as my kind of like trio of like unaligned heroes mm. who are the, Manticore, Lord, um, War Queen, and Chieftain, um, who sort of flip between the armies. Yeah. They each have specific alignments, like, uh, the War Queen's slightly more Zinch aligned, and the Manticore Rider is more, um, corn aligned. And I actually see the Chieftain is more Slanesh aligned. Mm. But, like, the idea is that, you know, they are kind of, like, also operating in this kind of theatre of war, and the, my, um, I see my, like, um, my corn is kind of like a small elite force and also like a really highly religious force, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, um, sort of like evil black Templars, if you will, mm. like always kind of crusading, but that's how, that's how they see it is like a sort of like form of like, um, kind of worship to go out. And I mean, I suppose all corn forces see it as that to mm. some extent, but like, I see this is much more like more really, righteous perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. More like, and, and more sort of like, um, uh, almost like this, it's the opposite of corn, but I find this interesting to be like, and a sort of like an aesthetic, like a kind of, you know, like what, what does minimalist corn look like? Mm. Like the reason I don't have any blood reavers and I don't really want any is because like, I don't see them as like desperate cannibals, which also works for corn totally. Yeah. I see this more as like kind of heavily armored sort of cornate knights that just gather their tally of skulls, like mm. almost like a, a big threshing machine mm. that's on fire and covered in blood but you know what i mean so they're more of a kind of like um again like maybe a slightly more cerebral take on horn because i just like wizards and i kind of want everything to be a wizard army but mm. nonetheless like i kind of like that idea as well it'd be great to get all this stuff to smash together yeah it's gonna be really exciting how's painting your star trek been? uh it's been very very slow after initially doing some of the very quick bits like dry brushing all the scales which turned mm. out great um i was i was riding high and uh, i was thinking oh yeah this will be done in pretty much no time it'll only take a few weeks but then you just have to drill down into all the little details in the model and the star drake is uh, an interesting one because he's got massive wings and they cover most of the model actually but it means that you have to finish every aspect of the core model before you glue those wings on and you pretty much have to finish the wings separately as well especially if you're going to be doing kind of like star patterns and stuff on them you just have to freehand those on a table so it's been a, a lot of just kind of going back to it and just 
staring at it for like 10 minutes and then making a list of all the little details that still need doing so i'm down to like teeth the tongue needs cleaning up claws the sort of the rocks he's standing on um but the end is actually in sight and um uh, i had loads of fun over the weekend doing detail on the wings because the wings are almost finished now on one side uh, adding like loads of starscapes to them and like loads of little kind of pinpoints of light and color uh in amidst the uh, the actual membrane of the wings to actually you know make them look mm. like a star drake or a creature of the stars i'm really pleased with the result of that uh unfortunately i've got to flip them over and do the underside of both of them which is going to be another day's work <laughs> uh, tell, me about it. tell me about it i like the yeah. work by the time we get to the end of this we will both have had this experience of drawing stars <laughs> on wings <laughs> like specifically and then yeah. realizing every wing is f- every wing is two surfaces it's two surfaces and it is a lot of plastic like it's a lot of space to cover and i'm not doing anything uh particularly like ambitious i think it looks good but it's it's a fairly simple formula it's just the number of glazes it takes the number of kind of like gently getting a, a, the gradient on it and then the stars as well it's yeah. just like it's it's a lot of work it's just gonna it just have to put the time in put some podcasts on and get it get it get through it kind of thing mm. like, it's going to look awesome when it's done like it's um the armor's pretty much done this the gold is pretty much done on it and that looks great and you're starting to see it come together um and now almost like the closer you get to completion the more glaringly obvious the unfinished bits are and uh so it's just gonna be about getting the teeth right and the claws right and the the getting my general's face right that's also something i'm dreading because that's something you just got to get as good as possible yeah uh and then one day i'll glue those magnificent giant wings on him and i'll finally get to see what the finished model looks like because it's very hard to hold everything in place and know what the star is going to look like before he's done i almost like holding off that moment a little bit like i did this with my lord of change where like i kind of would occasionally like allow myself a little cheat of like what it's going to look like on the base because i painted off the base as well so it's like you know there's a lot of like waiting and kind of fiddling and Mm. like I think I said this at the time, but like I stabbed myself with every single part of that model, you know, holding it and rotating it. And then yeah. there's a moment where you can finally, when it'll finally stand up on the base and you step back and look at it and it's like, oh, cool. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Like, and definitely when like, I always find like there's a point where as long as anything on the model isn't base coated, as long, you know, as long as anything on the model is still gray or whatever you call your primer was, hmm. you can't see the model yet. No. You can just see a itemized list of jobs yeah, in different sure. states. Yeah. And then there's a moment when everything is at least base coated where hmm. it's like, oh, model. That's why I really like that moment. Yeah. Uh, I look forward to that moment. I still feel like it's going to be a, while, a way off. It feels like the Star, Star Trek's been on my bench for a couple of months now almost. Um, just because I haven't had like a huge amount of time to actually go and do it. Well, my uh, Zangor have been on, on my desk yeah. since the beginning of the year. Like, yeah. It's just one of those big projects. So it's a, a centerpiece model and it's got to be, it's, you know, it's something you're going to be looking at a lot and feeling proud of. I feel like I have to put the wings on it and uh, just to get the kind of balance right. So I don't want the stars to be overwhelming. And a lot of the star mm. drakes I see online kind of, um, they do like mad lightning patterns and stuff on the wings, which like look really cool, but end up just like being the first place your eye goes. And your eyes shouldn't go to the wing first. They should go to like the face and the rider and stuff. And, um, you also kind of want to get a sense of how the overall impact of the model is going to look once it's done. Yeah. And I think it's going to be, fine i think it's gonna be pretty rad actually it's gonna be really pretty cool. pleased with where he's going yeah it might be finished by next time i think yeah well hopefully I by the time we next record i'll also have my tango done yeah sweet so the next the next battles are big and like, yeah that's true yeah that'd be oh yeah that'd be interesting like you should start planning for Meet 2000 up. points yeah yeah 
Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, after this, I'm going to do the two heroes I described earlier, the brother and sister heroes, and I'm going to do something different with their armor. They're going to be like black and gold, so to oh, set cool. them out. So they, they, they'll have come from like different a different place and you know matched up with this army for the for their talent. They're, they're kind of like special forces almost, is how I think of them. Right. Sigmar's realm. Uh, so they're, they're going to be black and gold. They have a bit of blue with them to t- tie them in, but they're going to be their own kind of thing. And after that, it's going to be the Vanguard Paladors, which is going to be another huge project. Um, and I'm going to need to devise a whole way of painting those uh, mm. beautiful chicken riders. Um, and I've got an idea. I, I, I want to do like uh, almost like tiger stripes, but with actually using brushwork to imply the fur. Um, mm, yes, and, I know exactly what you mean. Yes. That and, sounds hard. And it's going to be hard, <laughs> but if I get it right, because those models are so amazingly dynamic. They're so, so good. Yeah, they're great. Um, the, the flow of the fur and those little brush strokes will hopefully exaggerate that sense of motion and the sense of you know uh being mid like a, a cheetah mid-flight that kind of look and that's kind of in, in my perfect in my perfect mind's eye view of what these will be like it looks amazing but i need to learn some techniques to do this yeah <laughs> and get it right and it could take a long time <laughs> i think it's okay to have that though like in your yeah. back pocket like you have to be able to work at different speeds i mm. think mm. yeah yeah absolutely and i've always got some little silver left to pick up if i get bored and just, a dry brush just, a yeah exactly yeah. yeah i feel good about that quick project i did mm. so i've had a bit of a kind of mixed month because i spent a lot of time on this angle mm. um and then um i decided that i just wanted to like uh i knew i what i wanted to do with my my blue horrors i just hadn't gone around to doing them i knew i had to do them so I just did them mm. and actually it's the quickest uh so you've seen them now because i've had them with yeah you yeah um i assembled them we're recording this on monday night I assembled them Friday morning mm. and by Sunday morning they were all finished. Sweet. Which is 20 pink horror, blue yeah, horrors, which is the kind and it was kind of nuts in terms of speed. Mm. Um, so I think the main thing I learned was just like, so th- like I, there are things I'll return to about them that I want to tidy up. Mm. Um, I haven't quite done yet, but that's at me tabletop ready. Mm. Um, and in fact, really like the two, the two of my models that got, if it wasn't already obvious and we'll get to it in a minute, we were at an event yesterday. Um, the two models I had that got like a compliment during the day one was the Lord of Change took me three and a half weeks to do one model yeah and the other the Blue Horus which took <laughs> really? a day to do 20 of them oh that's awesome um, and not even a full day like mm. two sessions over the course of a day yeah, obviously a cool. play on Saturday afternoon like um, and so I think um, I think I've gotten I do feel like I've plateaued in some ways like mm. like since the beginning of the year if there's Sangor I've just been sitting there and I do a stage and it's a lot of work I'm basically I'm, I'm doing 30 at once and they're a complicated model yeah um so it's like, I'll do, you know, and I'm getting to the stage now where base coating is going to require multiple coats. So I'm doing, you know, I'm, I'm midway through the second Celestra Grey undercoat for skin, which is a couple of steps away from even really shading the skin. Mm. So it's just going to take time. I'm going to get there this week, I think, with a lot of them. But I've been working on, the, so doing something else quickly was nice. And like, I think like things like the the corn and the War Queen particularly were models that like I've spent a lot of time on. I'm really pleased with. Yeah, awesome. And they were nice. Um, but like, I sort of in this funny place with my zinch, I think, where it's like, I want this army done. Yeah. And I think it's going to look good when it's done. But also, I feel like, for, like somehow, because a lot of the techniques I came together to paint them, I'm, I'm still doing because it makes it look consistent. I'm changing some things, but not loads. Mm. I mean that like, not only have I plateaued a bit as a painter and haven't gone up loads, I feel like I won't necessarily go up a step with this army. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, there are going to be individual things I do better, mm. but like, I feel like, I can now, I can now conceive of this project and this army, which will be north of four and a half thousand points by the time I've, I'm done. Mm. Like, kind of being 
um always my first army if that makes sense yeah like it'll look perfectly good i think you know what i mean it's perfectly tabletop ready it's not you're never gonna be like oh man like my stuff i did when i was a teenager but i feel like it'll be the project after this one where it's like i mean too much i already see this my corn where it's like these are just a more interesting color scheme Mm -hmm. and kind of hold together better as a group um which is not to be too disparaging but it was sort of felt like i'm sort of letting myself speed up with a lot of stuff because it's like when this is done, I can look at it and figure out what I want to change and what I want to improve and what I want to keep and so on. Hmm. But I'm not going to get there until they're actually just done. Um, so I guess my kind of, I don't know if we can totally do like learnings from this month. Hmm. But one of them was just like, I came up with a way of speed painting blue horrors and I was really like, just really pleased with how it worked. Like, I guess, and like, um, I think the most important thing for me is making like basically like, it saves so much time, particularly on a model like a blue horror that has a really clear base color to start with that base color. Mm. And if you can't easily start with that base color, figure out a color scheme that lets you do it. So with the blue horrors, um, they don't look like this has happened, but the way I did their skin really quickly mm. was base coating them, the fang, which is gray blue. Yeah. Um, which, uh, and then dry brushing them up, through the kind of space wolf colors, basically. So rust gray, then pheasant and fenrisian gray, um, which get, takes them to a kind of light bluey gray color and then, um, glazing them with un, undiluted gilliman blue, mm. which shifts the entire model into what would otherwise be like the ultramarine blue, McCrag blue kind of range yeah. tone. And it's so much quicker. Like you couldn't do an ultramarine in this way because they're too, uh, angular. Like it requires the kind of organic shapes of a, yeah. of a horror, but, that meant that like reasonably good looking skin, which is 90% of those models was possible with a spray to lots of dry brushing and a glaze, which is so much quicker, mm. so much quicker than base coating them. It's so much quicker than, um, sort of trying to shade and highlight normally that I saved days of time, mm. like, and the effect really in terms of how much time they spend, models spend on the table is not much different, yeah. right? You wouldn't necessarily tell, like, my pink horrors are base-coated, shaded, washed, and, mm. and layered and stuff. They don't necessarily look that different. Right. And that just comes from being a bit smarter about how to pick uh, spray paints, basically. It right. makes yeah, so yeah. much difference. It mm. makes so much difference. That's interesting. Um, and now I think I would actually almost a- approach armies or prospective projects knowing what kind of spray paint, not necessarily even a GW spray paint, like, but mm. what spray base color I can use because base coating is certainly my least favorite part of painting. Yeah. That's the thing I find most disheartening when you're kind of midway through it. I'm definitely there at the moment with this angle. Mm-hmm. So being able to take that step away and not lose anything in terms of the overall quality, particularly for line troops for kind of big blocks of things, yeah. makes such a big difference that I really want to stick with it. The obvious answer to this is get an airbrush, you idiot. Mm-hmm. Cause then you have the full range available to you. But short of that, and that's a big investment, you know, hundreds yeah. of pounds that I don't really want to spend right now short of that this has been a really useful thing to kind of figure out i guess is that like and i'll plan probably future projects this way as well yeah cool Where, whenever i'm looking at like 40 models or something i'd like yeah. to figure out what which of these colors is the most useful one to spray yeah is the kind is that interesting question to ask yourself yeah pre-finished yeah or which of these colors am i going to hate doing by hand the most <laughs> and then spray it that color and yeah. then deal with everything yeah, else it. yeah um that reminds me i painted the crimson fist this month as well mm. um so I just had my space marines hanging around and, um, I just, I know, I knew I wasn't going to paint any space marines for ages. So I thought I'd just do a Crimson Fist test model because I was still like torn <laughs> and I still love the Crimson Fists. I'm still torn as well. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's difficult 
Um, but I really enjoyed painting the Crimson Fist. And it was pretty much just like Cantor Blue. And the, the rest of the highlights are just mixed. So it was de- various degrees of Celestra Grey uh, mixed in with Cantor Blue. And then with varying degrees of kind of line highlights and everything. Mm. Edge highlights and all over the place. Um, and it was actually, I felt like my brushwork got better by the end of it. Like it was really good edge highlighting practice. Right. Uh, yeah, and yeah. just because the Primaris are quite tricky, actually. They're not like a, if you're going to design, a, you know, a beginner army um for new painters you can you can just like base coat wash and dry brush primaris but really to get the most out of it you want to kind of be edge highlighting all of those armor panels to make them pop out and that's actually deceptively difficult even though there's not like huge amount of detail on those models those that edge highlighting challenge is actually very very good practice if you want to get better at it i mean I'd, i'd probably just buy a couple more primaris and just practice going around the edges with the brush getting the right consistency of paint on the brush and also just um i i'm learning to press less hard with the brush almost because mm. you know the harder you press the wider the line is to actually just let the actual yeah. very very tip of it just touch it and let it sort of guide it around and heavy it. metal whisper <laughs> exactly just like just stroke it yeah uh and so the, the edge highlighting on this has been much cleaner than anything else i've done previously just simply because i was paying attention to that and actually thinking about it as yeah. a lesson so i think actually when you're doing something like thinking instead of just kind of getting it done thinking okay i'm going to try and actually nail this as best as i possibly can and sort of feel always get the muscle memory for it mm. like going around the bottom edge of a um uh primaris's lower kind of armor leg just below the kneecap that's like the, one of the hardest bits to do cause yes just basically that, have yeah. to free like freehanded pretty much uh the model itself doesn't help you out very much with that it's actually quite a shallow um impressions around there so you it's just like brush control and i think you just the only way to get better at that is just to do it over and over again yeah and the more i do it the more i realize it's not even like a talent thing it is just just do this a lot and you will get better at it by doing it um so i mean i dread doing that for 10 of them <laughs> because it took ages uh but again maybe like the next thing i could look at is i want to achieve the same quality but half the time like, yeah be much yeah exactly faster. like how much of this do i need to do yeah to get the effect is an interesting question yeah and, yeah so it's almost like a training sort of turning into a game like how how uh, test models are really liberating for that that's why i like like to occasionally very occasionally buy like a, one of those sort of 10 pound starter boxes where it's just some push fit models and i do yeah. that for like liberators and I've, I've done that i'll do that for primaris as well just because like i just want to paint something and get good at a technique and i'm just going to do it on this model and basically yeah, it, and it's so, going to be done in a few hours and, and it'll, i'll be pleased with it because it'll look good it's a nice like yeah i mean so much of the stuff is just practice right like yeah. um i think that's maybe the thing that like all of my sort of techniques I've developed for Zinch. This, I guess, is what I'm saying. Like, I feel like I've, like, I know those techniques now, mm. so I can just do them faster. Yeah. Like, I'm so much faster. Mm. But like, in order to go up to the next level, I need some new techniques. Mm. And these models probably aren't going to be the ones I found where I find them mm. totally yeah. because I've got my way of doing them now. And I, those they can be improved, but it's a different method to like finding a new technique or something like that. Mm. Like, one of the reasons I really like to do deepkin eventually is like I'd like to do an army with no metals because mm. I've done so much metal. Yeah. Like my idea for doing deepkin one day is to do no metal whatsoever like everything being made of coral coral, isn't it yeah Yeah. Yeah. i love that they've left that open because the a lot of the heavy metal um schemes interpret that coral as metal 
yeah, it's almost like shaded metal, but you totally just do it with um, any colours, any coral colours you wanted, and it would look great. Like it's obviously been designed that way, hasn't it? To yeah, take that type of one color. of the enclaves specifically has coral on it, uh, cool. and so they're kind of intended to be painted that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they have some suggestions for like how you can use the natural patterning of coral, like mm. stippling and stuff over them, which nice. metal wouldn't normally do. And that's an amazing, yeah, it's a great idea. Degree yeah. of freedom, like the combination of both organic shapes and shaped kind of elven designs, is super cool with that yeah, range. Like it's one nice. of the things I like about them. Yeah, most. it's really nice. Um, yeah, no, totally. Um, so yeah, the next couple of weeks for me looks like a, a big sprint to get ready for London GT. So of that's course, what I'm yeah, kind yeah. of leaning into. Mm. But, um, do you have your army list set for that? Pretty much. Nice. Although, uh, we can get on to talking about this, I guess. Um, the Ogre Thamaturge did a lot of work for me yesterday. Yeah. And he's not currently featured in the army list. So I'm trying to figure out what I need to move around to make space for Big Bullman. Mm. The underrated is his new epithet. I <laughs> yeah. <think. laughs> yeah. He's always been good. He has always been good, but like, I think he's not considered like competitively that great, but actually, no. And he wants to. Yeah, I, th- I think, um, it's because people will take a unit of Skyfires instead of that, I suppose. And if, if you had a unit of Skyfires, I imagine you'd probably take And it will do. Take right, one. Yeah. Well, yeah, there you go. Yeah, get ready for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's coming. So, I mean, if, for, for tournaments, I mean, I could see each player just, why would you take an Ogroid over a unit of, uh, another unit of Skyfires? Because it's really pointed, aren't they? Yeah, I think, because I'm leaning towards being a little bit more competitive than I normally am, but also, I still really do stick within the kind of this has to feel like an army sort of thing. Mm. Like the kind of army I can't do both personally in terms of expense and stuff is just the good units, please. It's the three Lords of Change, right. two units of Pink Horrors, to meet Battle Line, Shitloads of Skyfires, like yeah. that, that sort of thing. Um, can't quite do that. Can't quite bring myself to do that. Don't want to pay another Lord of Change, to be honest. Like, <laughs> but, um, yeah, there's definitely a middle ground, which is being slightly more competitive, but still having like army composition in terms of it looks like an army in your head. Yeah. So definitely moving in that direction. Mm. Shall we talk about what will stand in for a battle report this month? Yeah. Which is instead. Many battle reports. <laughs> many, many. Which is instead basically eight battle reports. Yeah. Let's try and remember them all. But we went to a tournament yesterday. We did. Well, that's a point tournament at Bristol Independent Gaming which is lovely if you're near and you want to do some more gaming. They've got loads of tables, loads of systems, and it's it's rad. So give, train. It a, give it a little uh, little plug there because it is very good. It is very good. I've been going there for years for X-Wing. Mm. I know the owner gym pretty well, and I like it there a lot. It's, it is in the middle of nowhere to some extent. Yeah. But um, but yeah, so yesterday we went down to a thousand point uh, Age of Sigmar tournament. Mm. It's the first time you and I have been to an event. Yeah. Together, which is nice. It's my second event in like a month as well. Yeah. <laughs> pretty hardcore. Love it. And, um, uh, Chimp joined us. So. Yeah, it was nice. It's kind of like, it was nice for us to kind of compare our thoughts and armies before ahead of the Firestorm campaign as well. Yeah, kind indeed. See the, cause Chimp brought, um, a, a very funny, um, death army, <laughs> which we'll get into. So yeah, so I think obviously we're not going to have to do turn by turn for every single game we play. No, no. But we should go back and forth, I think, talking about each of our first games. Cause sure. we also shared some opponents as well. Yes. So, um, should we start off with your first game? Yes. So, um, th- oh, well, actually, no, what we should do is start off with what our armies were. I think that's probably good point. Yes. Yeah. So it was a thousand points and I took, I basically took the 1000 points I took to the doubles tournament with Chimp. So, um, it was two units of adjudicators, which are the archers. Uh, it was a unit of fulminators, just two of them, the dragon cavalry, who are very good in the game. Uh, 
the general was Lord Castellant, whose job is to shine a lantern and make the saves better on the formulators. Uh, and there was also a Sir Lestant Prime, <laughs> which may or may not have been a good choice for this tournament. We shall see. Um, so I took, um, so also I should, I should say that like, I consider every game I play with my army to be part of the story. Yeah. So even though these were like tournament games, this is still, uh, you know, part of this campaign, part of this new campaign that we're starting. Mm. So, you know, your, your, um, Lord Castellan is my previous Chaos Sorcerer Lord. Yep. who was killed by Galmaraz and reforged mm. in our previous campaign. Um, so this was, and this for me was the return of my Lord of Change. So the army was led by my Lord of Change with two units, pink horrors, um, the Gaunt Summoner, uh, the Ogre Thaumaturge. So almost like the core of the Silver Tower kind of leadership cadre. Yeah. Like they're still around. Um, a block of 20 brimstone horrors, um, and, uh, a hundred, um, reinforcement points left over to be used either for a Bailwind Vortex or for the first time to let me split any unit of 20, a unit of 10 pink horrors into 20 blue horrors when they die. Right. Um, and that was a bit of freedom that I added because previously when I put aside 100 points, it was always for a Bailwind, uh, which is very good against hordes, but mm-hmm. a little bit weaker against minimum strength units like Stormcast, um, or, uh, minimum size units, sorry. Yeah. Um, whereas Blue Horror is very good and they make the tar pitting a lot easier. Mm-hmm. So I gave myself a little bit of flexibility. But yeah, so that was the armies. Let's talk first game for you. Uh, yeah. So, um, they basically asked us to pair up with whoever in the first, um, the first round and I, I went straight for the guy who brought an Eidneth army and obviously hastily kind of put it together and sprayed it. And it was, it, it was totally just undercoated and, and gray plastic. But I mean, those models have only been out for a week or two. So, you know, I leapt at the chance to play against the, the shiny new thing. Yeah. Um, and what was the first scenario? It was, uh, it was Star Strike, which is the one where, uh, objectives come down one comes down at a random part of the middle of the board and then the turn after that two more come down in each player's territory again in random places yeah that's right and it was um it was an interesting game and i was just really fascinated to see the play against the rules of the idoneth and he had um he had the aspect of mathlan which is the eidolon uh, and he had the the wizard variant of it not the kind of combat variant you can build them in two different ways yeah uh, you also had two uh, squads of Namati, which are the uh, very tasty kind of uh, basic units for um, the, for the melee Ardenth. melee people. Melee people, they've got like one rends. They uh, do if they're fighting things with one wound, they get extra attacks. If they're fighting things with more than a certain number of wounds, they they do extra damage. So they're actually kind of they scale in different ways to different units they're fighting, which is a really cool way of showing elven expertise in combat. You yeah, know what I mean? uh, which I really liked. And he also had a unit of the Sword Masters of Hoeth, which is an old school. Uh, high elf unit, high, elite high elf unit, and they're very good kind of anti-shooting because they can chop arrows out of the air, and they're also relatively punchy in combat, but kind of not that great anymore. Um, and yeah, I think that was his entire army. Yeah, yeah. So there's some interesting rules things here, yes. um, which I was going to cover earlier talking about Ideneth because when I went back and looked at the book, so um, there's a uh, he declared that his army was part of the Iron Rack Enclave. Mm. Uh, their special ability is. Well, their special ability, one of them, is a command trait that your general has to take. His general was the Eidolon, um, uh, which means that you, your allies, benefit from the Tides of Death ability, yeah. which is the Eidoneth Special Tides thing. Mm. The thing that's really interesting about this is, so the, the reason the Swordmasters were so good, presumably against your Judicators, mm. is 
um, Eidneth have a, a, a army-wide special rule called Forgotten Nightmares that mean that you can't shoot at an Eidneth unit unless it is the closest unit. Yep. Um, so Swordmasters, which can chop arrows out of the air, really good at absorbing uh, ranged fire. Mm. However, this is one of those moments of like, oh, hang on, will this get FAQ'd? So according to that um, Iron Rack Enclave ability... Mm. The allies get the Tide special rule. They do not get the Forgotten Nightmare special yeah, rule. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking about. However, the way the Forgotten Nightmares rule is worded means that you can't target an Ideneth unit if there is a closer enemy unit. Okay. So they technically don't need it mm. in order to screen for other Ideneth units. Right, right. However, later in the same book, in the tactics <laughs> no. guide, yeah. it specifies Ideneth for both. Okay, yeah. So whether that's actually legal, yeah, like... Yeah. Honestly, uh, that player's, that player's reading of that Mm. is fine, Mm. but the book is a little bit unclear. And because it's a potentially powerful source of synergies with having like, given that you have this army wide shooting restriction, being able to take anything from any other order force, not any other order force, but lots of them Mm. and stick them in front of your army as a kind of, uh, incalculable shooting buffer is potentially a source of min-max hell. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, we'll see how that pans out, because it definitely feels like there's some wording to be clarified one way or the other at some point there. Uh, So so this big unit of Swordmasters obviously just marched them up the centre of the board, um, because I I also had a very shooting-heavy army anyway, as uh, with continuous adjudicators of the battle line, um, and they had no choice but to shoot the Swordmasters, and the Swordmasters were kind of mystic-shielded up, obviously, and they had their kind of minus-to-hit ability for their chopping stuff out the air, and they're also just... Barely buffed by spells and stuff as well. Um, and also, uh, in the first round of Tides of, uh, Death, I think you get a plus one. You're in cover you're anyway. In cover anyway as well, for, out in the open. So they were just impossible to k- kill. And I had to shoot them, so I tried just to see what the dice would do. And, um, I think got, just nicked one off. Um, and then the objective came down in the dead center of the board where the Swordmasters were. And at that point, I had to just charge the formulators into them. And try and just clear out the centre and actually just give my archers the ability to access the rest of the enemy army. And they, um, uh, they got the charge and I'm getting better at actually getting the charges I want with formulators, which is a, a key part of actually having them in your, in your army. Cause on the charge, they have three damage and that's where they tend to clear off units. Uh, they killed all but two of them on the charge. And, um, but then they got swarmed by the rest of the army and then the turn three happened and that's high tide for the Ideneth. And when high tide happens, they get to attack first, not just in, uh, the enemy's turn, but also in your turn subsequently in the combat phase as well, because that high tide just lasts for all of turn three. Uh, so the formulators went down at that point. Uh, so I was still able to shuffle across with my archers and take the objective in my territory. Uh, the objective was firmly in the Ideneths. Uh, you know, the central objective was firmly belonged to the Ideneth because it had two units of normality around it and the uh, two swordmasters and the uh, the Eidolon was just in the centre as well. Uh, so I brought the prime down on turn three, I think, at in their backfield and he had run across a unit of Nomata to try and protect that point but my prime charged them and wiped them out completely and at that point I had two of the three points and uh, the, the number of points you score is the uh, depends on the turn that you're in is that yeah. right so yes. you can so if you earn points towards the end of the game because you it's basically a comeback mechanic is saying that if yeah. you can if you have a late game swell you can actually take a couple of points and get 10 points on the board and actually take him off and if i'd have had the double turn there which was like a possibility i would have won the game because i would have just had it with the prime 
uh, had one point with the prime, had one point with the judicators and scored like, uh, loads of points and actually gotten too far ahead for him to really deal with it, even if he ha- did come across and kill my prime. But I lost that. The, um, the Eidolon came over and, uh, killed the prime, which always tends to happen. <laughs> and, um, that was game over at that point, really. Uh, but it was an interesting game. Uh, the sword masters did it for me, really, because without that shooting output, able to go into the rest of the army then it's very hard for me to clear off the bodies that he needs to actually um take the points yeah hmm. yes um spoilers i had some experience with the same army a little bit later <laughs> yes. in this event. yeah um yeah that's um I, th- I think um did you did your game did you finish all five rounds we did i think uh, ev- uh, every game i finished five rounds within an hour but that amazing was- because I had a very I got to the end of round two in that game <laughs> really I've got that was a lot of abilities firing off and stuff yeah it's it's tricky like I do feel like a thousand points and um four foot by four footboards could use a few considerations when they design match play scenarios mm. but we'll get to that mm. um so my first game was uh against a chap called uh Ben who does a two piece in a pod podcast I believe I haven't listened to I have to confess but like um, he was a super nice guy and a really, he got best painted, I think, at the end of the yeah, day. Yeah, really, really right? lovely. Iron Jaws, yeah. Um, really lovely Iron Jaws. And, um, and so, um, and we both had a quite a relaxed, casual kind of attitude, uh, to the game. Same scenario, but we had, we were playing on a board with a huge mountain right in the middle of it. So mm. we had a sort of split. And, um, for me, this game was like a real, um, kind of, uh, like proof that every army building, thing i'd make every decision i'd made about stuff to add was the correct decision because it was very much a kind of minimum size unit iron jaws force uh with the boar riding people and the brutes and stuff yeah and um so in this scenario bailwind is actually not that good Hmm. so i held my points back and i arranged my brimstone horrors in like a long line in front of my army as a screen uh between two pieces of terrain And he got the first turn and he, he pulled off the thing that, um, uh, happened to me the first time I played Iron Jaws actually, uh, Cardiff last year, which is, um, he didn't get there with his whole army. Some things were lagging behind, but his brutes and his gore grunters, the ball mounted cavalry, uh, both got to move twice during the hero phase, thanks to the destruction stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. And then the Gorgrunters made an 11 inch charge and the Brutes made 10 inch charge on natural dice. Gosh. Um, which got them into my Brimstone Horrors, his first turn, mm. which was like, um, previously when I played against them, that's always into pink horrors. It's always into something relatively sensitive that I need to, for tempo reasons to keep the game going. I need to hold on to, they hit the Brimstone Horrors and they wiped out the Brimstone Horrors completely yeah. in that turn. They killed all 20 of them. Um, but, uh, the Brimstone Horrors hilariously did manage to wound a Gorgrunter, which is like good for them, yeah. but they completely done their job. That was 80 points of my army gone, mm. but then I suddenly it's my turn yeah. and suddenly those Brutes and Gorgrunters, I just sat in front there within my eight, very short magic bubble, my 18 inch magic bubble of everything. Yeah, yeah. And the rest of his army is miles away. And it was just like opening up the sort of like okay who wants to go to space who wants to be on fire who wants to be on fire and in space mm. um so um and then as sometimes happened in aos i got the double turn so suddenly like actually did i get the double turn i think i did actually because i wiped out those two units and that was a big chunk of his army a lot yeah, of the rest yeah. of the stuff was lagging behind um i think so anyway 
No, I didn't actually. No, what happened was I did loads of damage. I think I wiped out all the Gore Grunters and I got them down to like two brutes left. Um, swarming in loads of pink horrors trying to get towards the objective then for us the um took quite a while to get to the start of round two when we got to start round two i lost the roll off and the objective came down right in the middle of the board which is like on top of this mountain and we weren't sure about how to resolve right yeah so what we said was that the mountain which was this huge kind of monolith thing um would would be the objective we realized at this point in the clock that we probably wouldn't get to round three yeah so it's like okay let's just you know, we've each got a chance to score this in our own turns. Mm. Fight for this mountain. Being three inches of this mountain, you're capturing it. So he ran all of his, um, Ard Boys, I think, the kind of the generic normal battle ones, right? Line. Yeah. 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 Uh, so they were hugging it, basically. So yeah, ten yeah. of them were hugging it. And my Pink Horrors couldn't quite get to it. And then he got his, um, his, uh, war boss across the battlefield and smashed him into the Pink Horrors and annihilated the pink horrors in the combat phase killed them all before they could fight back yeah but i wanted this to happen and this is the most zinchy thing that's ever happened for me mm. because when they died end of the phase i spend my reinforcement points to split them into 20 blue horrors oh nice and when they split they have to be split within um they have to, the the whole unit has to be wholly within six inches of the last horror to be removed right so the last horror i removed was the one closest to the objective. Mm. Six inches got me completely onto the objective and I just split all the blue horrors onto the objective. Nice. So that wasn't important because it let me score it. It switched it off for him and it gave him the huge problem of like, mm. you have to get me off it. Yeah. Now, we're not going to draw at the end of this game. Now I'm ahead, which was a really nice. Like that, the, the being able to choose between blue horrors and the Bellwind won that game. That's awesome. Yeah. Totally that's really, really cool. That that's really cool. What was cool, however, was on that turn, oh, his, yes, um, his, <laughs> um, <laughs> so I actually like, I often feel like one of the things I don't like about playing Zinch is I play Zinch because I love the fiction and the models, mm. but because it's been like a top tier competitive list for a long time and because people don't like being mortal wounded to death by spells. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, it's not that different between mortal wounded to death by anything in the game. And there's a lot of mortal wounds in, in the game, but mm. there was, I, I actually heard it during the day. There's sometimes that whispers of like, oh, Zinch again. And it's like, it makes my heart sad every yeah, time yeah. I hear that. Cause it is just my army. Like I, you know, I don't want to feel bad about running it. No. Um, but occasionally when you get to do the tricks, you want to do the tricks. Mm. And so, um, I gave my general the command trait that, uh, my lord of change, the command trait that extends his binding range to 27 inches, which is useless a lot of the time. But, um, at, at the beginning of that round two, um, his, uh, weird knob shaman was exactly 27 inches from my lord of change. Mm. And he tried to cast foot of gork, which is the one where the sky opens up and a big orc foot comes down and just starts stamping on people. And it does shit loads of damage. The way it works is it does D6 mortal wounds and you roll the dice on a four up, it does D6 mortal wounds again. And then right, you roll right, right. on a four up, it does D6 mortal wounds again and just keeps going yeah. until it stops. Um, cause he just keeps stamping mm. and I unbound it and I unbound it with a roll of 11 because mm. that's greater than 10. The Lord of Change then knows that spell for the rest of the game. Right. So I was <laughs> looking at that and I was like, I'm just sorry, man, I have to, I have to, <laughs> I have to do this. Um, cast foot of gork with the lord of change on his war boss uh and it was both successful and fully killed his war boss from full health but the best slash worst thing about this is my mortal wound rolls were terrible right right so i was getting like i did two mortal wounds and then it happened again another two mortal wounds and has seven health and the final one was five mortal wounds but it's this idea that the sky opens up and this huge lord of change foot just (laughs) very slowly stomping this giant foot's claw (laughs) exactly uh, Um, and um 
so yeah my lord of change that was my lord of change's return to this game is like welcome back big bird you just stomped a a <laughs> orc war boss to death with foot of gork very good which was very very good um and that really um uh defanged the part of his army that could do anything mm-hmm. on that part of the board and then um to add insult to injury the blue horrors opened up because they have the same range attack as pink horrors, it's just shorter range. Yeah. So basically, as long as you're within range, killing a full unit of pink horrors doubles its firepower. That's true. Um, so they all th- th- uh, did their ranged attack at the war chanter and killed him from mm. full health. Just <laughs> like yeah, well, so like uh, he'd he'd really lost any ability to like really respond to them. Yeah, yeah. Um, without giving up the objective himself, mm. and um, I managed to like mortal wound off on enough of his um normal boys to um, basically shut him out of the game at that point. So that was starting with a win, which was nice. Sweet. Yeah, so that was good. Um, what's your second game? Uh, I played against Stormcast in the second game. It was mm. the first mirror match I've ever played. Uh, and it was interesting to play against exactly the same units and know exactly what they all do. And uh, his army, I think, was um, some formulators. He had a, a big unit of 10 liberators, which is unusual, and a relic to a castellant and uh five retributors that he put in space and this scenario of the second round was the hero capture one yeah so there are two points and uh, the thing is that you have to put a hero on them and for every turn the hero is on that point he gains uh the number of points that he's been on there so if he's been on, th- on there three turns he gets three points that turn for that and so on so it's about planting heroes on on objectives and trying to score them for as long as possible trying to keep them alive protect yeah. them screen people off that kind of stuff uh it's an interesting scenario because it uh it forces you to take heroes <laughs> Basically, if you're going to go into a tournament, you've got, you've got to have enough heroes to at least contest this. I had two heroes. Um, one was the Celestant Prime, who ordinarily is in space for most of the game, and the other one was the Castellant. And on his part, he just had the Relics from the Castellant. Uh, it was a really close game, and I'm very glad we got to play the four or five turns of it, because uh, he basically put the liberators and his two heroes on one side of the board and at that point i knew okay so you'll you know exactly what he's going to do he's going to come up with the liberators and screen off the two heroes as they just sit on this point for as many turns as they possibly can um so i deployed the formulators opposite on that flank i went around the back of a huge kind of uh another huge the, the scenery pieces at this tournament were enormous massive line of sight blocking kind of mountainous things went around the side of this followed by the castellant um and by turn three, I'd managed to get, uh, with some clever manoeuvring just around the three inch bubble of the liberators, managed to get three inches away from both the relictor and the castellan, uh, with my castellan in tow, casting the lantern on them. And at the, the, his formulators had charged across the center of the board and killed all of my archers. Um, but I was fine with that because, um, the formulators weren't going into my heroes. And the main thing you want to do is just kill the yeah, heroes, yeah, totally. basically. Uh, and then there was a huge moment, turn three, uh, I brought down the prime on uh, the left side of the board near the formulators. There's nothing else on that side of the board. Uh, so if my prime had kind of like managed to sit there, that was game one, but he had to kill the formulators because the formulators were going to ch- charge in and take him out. So he came down nine inches away from the formulators. I had my three inches uh, charge for, for the form- for my formulators on his two heroes on the other side of the board. Um, so I rolled my dice to the prime. And I rolled a one and a two. Oh my god. And, uh, the prime has a special ability that lets you change one dice in each round. So basically, you can guarantee a charge if you roll at least one three. Because <laughs> the other one, you just turn into a six and you get your nine inches. So I rolled a one and a two, he felt his charge. And I was like, oh, not again. I'm so used to ha- it happening with the prime. It happens all the time. Um, and then when I go to the formulators, snake eyes, 
on the, the oh charge over there. I was like, oh my god, it's over. <laughs> I was like, this, this attempt to win this game is absolutely doomed. There's no way this is going to happen at all. Um, but Age of Sigma, play it to turn five. Always play it to turn five. You don't know. And, um, yeah, always play it to the end because you, you're always in with a chance with most of the scenarios. And so I, uh, <laughs> managed to survive kind of counter charges on the, the one flank with my formulators. And on the other side, uh, the formulators charged my prime and killed him instantly. <laughs> the formulators <laughs> that he wanted to go in and kill just went and ate him. That was it. Um, but my formulators on the other side were just amazing. Like they managed to pile in eventually to the heroes and they just obliterated them. They just really, really destroyed them. Uh, and my castling got on the point and the formulators then destroyed all of the liberators. They just stood there completely tanking everything, healing back up and just killed everything. And, uh, it, w- he then eventually brought down his five retributors and was bringing his formulators back in turn four and i basically had my castlers sat on the point and had been, been sat on the point for like a, a two turns now and they formed a kind of just a barrier around him. they went sideways and just formed a kind of screen around him uh, against the other two units and th- so they would have to charge the formulators wouldn't be able to pile into the castellan and i won the game in turn five because simply because he couldn't get to get to my guy awesome. uh, so you go from that point of just failing everything in turn three and you, you think everything's just not going to go your way and it's, it's not rescuable but just keep playing the best you can until the end and you might get it mm. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was a bloody match and it was really close and I'm, I just managed to scrape it. I, um, I think my second game, like I definitely made some mistakes in it, but mm. it, I also had a bit of a calamitous dice catastrophe, yeah. which I, cause I can agree. You can have cold turns. Mm. You can't have cold turns every turn. No. Like you need that moment where things come back. You do. You do. Um, so my second game was against the Eidneth, who you played against in yes. the first one. And I sort of identified the weakness of that was that, yeah, you need heroes to control objectives. Mm. A, I've got more heroes. B, one of his heroes is Latan, who is the octopus man. Yep. Pretty weak. The other is the Eidolon, which is scary, but it's only one unit. Mm-hmm. Um, so my plan, uh, but because he had these big blocks of infantry, my plan was to send the Gaunt somewhere up on the Bailwind, at least for the first part of the battle, um, to just start wrecking those units. Because their whole, you can't target me for shooting thing doesn't apply to magic. All of their saves against shooting attacks doesn't apply to mortal wounds. My hope was that with um, the Gaunt Summoner's anti-horde ability, I can do a lot of damage to swordsmen hmm. pretty quickly. Um, and he gave me the first turn, which I thought was a pretty big risk, because I can potentially battle shock off one of those units or, or yep. devastate its potential. Um, however, uh, despite having plus three to cast and rerolling ones, I managed to fail to cast everything. Mm. Um, so I didn't, I did one mortal wound to Latan with an arcane bolt in that first turn of magic. Yep. Um, so it split my forces to try and crowd him out of one of the objectives and, um, be positioned to kind of take the other one with my Lord of Change, depending on which way he chose to go. Mm. Um, he chose to kind of split his forces so that he had the Eidolon and the Swordsmasters go for one objective and all of the Nomati Reavers and Latan go for the other one. Um, and then, um, got a, a double turn. So then the double turn, the second turn for the Eidoneth is run and charge. So that kind of carried him all the way into my territory at that point, because he could run in the first turn and then yeah. run and charge in the second yeah, turn. Yeah. So I was already kind of crowded out of actually getting anywhere hmm. um, because my hope was to actually like um, absorb a charge, mortal wounds as much as I can, and then take the objectives. I didn't want to overextend too much because I didn't want to get carved up by the Reavers while they're still at full strength. Yeah. So this is still sort of part of the plan, um, sort of, but, it just could, it just didn't quite work. Like, um, 
it's not like I, I do believe genuinely that dice even out over the course of a game but it matters when things do happen yeah for sure so like i was really like um he had a lot of his um he'd set up um shipwrecks kind of protecting the objectives for himself because he gets a six up ignore near them and that was coming off just enough to keep one unit alive yeah. etc yeah um which is very hard to deal with there was a thing that um so this is like this is absolutely not on this player specifically, but it's a really important detail in the rules. We mentioned earlier when we were talking about how these terrain features are going to factor into the game mm. that we weren't considering and has a huge bearing on how they're used and I think is a factor in their balance. Yeah. Which is uh, an etheric vortex of any kind needs to be placed so that it's more than an inch from any terrain feature. Mm. Which means you can't completely block off a passageway with it, which yeah. was happening in this game. Like there was it was impossible to get through a particular place without going past the vortex right or something. yeah yeah like an inch doesn't sound like a lot but an inch from any on a busy board is actually quite a it does limit where they can go yeah and it also limits how big they can be you mm. know whether you know you want the big ones because the image might not might not be a space for them at all particularly on a four foot by four foot board ignoring that rule meant that there were situations where like i was completely bottlenecked where thinking about it in hindsight those objectives couldn't have gone mm. Uh, following the rules that's like again that's the sort of thing where it's a little detail in the wording that i don't i don't believe that was a bad faith interpretation by that player no, no. i think it was a genuine oversight i think it's like I, it fits so i'm gonna put it here but yeah, no, yeah you have to pay attention to that part of the rules so that's just one thing that kind of occurred to me that game yeah i don't think you should be able to block off routes like that with train pieces no but you, you can't place, the, yeah. the rules you can't but i mean you, you can block off like any cavalry units with that because for example formulators yeah. are more than inch wide like so you mm, although maybe for movement that wouldn't I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure how you'd interpret that. I'm not quite that. sure how you'd interpret that. I but I think that's that's a nightmare recipe. If people are able to place terrain in a way... Because the thing with woods with Sylvaness is that anyone can move through woods, right? Yeah, it, I think it, in order to be in order for there to be only an inch gap, you need to be in a weird situation where both sides hmm. are exactly an inch from another piece of terrain, which would require very specific positioning of those other pieces of terrain, which isn't that likely. Yeah. Like, that's the thing. Like, some of these gaps that were being plugged with the ghost ships... Um, you couldn't you just wouldn't be able to get it in there because there's always going to be a position where it's less sure. than an inch from another piece of terrain I see what you mean. like because like there were lots of like little picket fences on that board and one of, one of them was basically in the shipwreck mm. and it fit physically but that's again like sure. yeah 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 not to the mean. rules um but yeah so it was interesting so i sort of i was in a bit of reco disaster recovery mode from that both a uh, very very weak opening turn and then double turn um and then the um, beginning of my second turn I still had most of my big guns online. It really was time to like start taking some names. Um, but unfortunately, like I had one of the weakest turns I've ever, like my opponent was like in that full kind of commiseration mode. Hmm. Um, I managed to get off, uh, 2d6, two separate d6 mortal wound spells on the Eidolon, which has 12 wounds in a, in a very lucky game. That's a dead Eidolon in a average game. That's a seriously needs to consider where it's standing idle on. Yeah. I did one mortal wound with each of them, which it then healed. Um, all of, I managed to fail to hit with 10 four up shooting attacks and pink horrors. Lord of Change charge whiffed every single attack mm. and then received six wounds in return from Namati Reavers. Um, 34 shooting attacks from Brimstone Horrors into one swordsman <laughs> failed to kill him. Damn. Um, it was just like a kind of cascading, like, I mean, admittedly, like that's 34, five up, five up attacks. 
but I needed to get one wound through. The swordmaster and the, they're, they're the ones which have resist shooting. Yeah, and so it's not totally it. unheard of, but it's not. A it great is. It moment. is. It's not a great. It's feeling. a bad feeling moment. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, for sure. Like. I, and I sort of gambled on that a little bit. And then this is my mistakes. And I think it's more important to dwell on my mistakes than the bad dice. But like, it was so difficult to get to that objective when the Eidolon was sitting on it. And I needed to kind of like charge him with the Ogroid or something. Yeah. And that wasn't going to be possible because I couldn't get rid of this in Swordmaster mm. in order to be able to get out of that combat. Yeah. Um, so it was a very sort of like grindy kind of, uh, not frustrating necessarily because it's really fun to see what the Eidneth can like do. Hard fought. It was very hard fought. Very and then I just couldn't get the, I needed like in order to come back, I needed a double turn mm. or I needed a, um, like, I needed a, a good round of damage, like something like that that sort of punches a hole in the defenses. Like what you're saying with having that feeling halfway through the game, because I agree with you, it's not over till it's over. Yeah. Um, and you can come back with a great moment and it happens both ways in games. And that's one thing that's exciting about AOS, mm. but it has to happen eventually. And when it just doesn't, yeah. there's not, because actually I went into that game thinking there's actually a pretty good matchup for me. Yeah. Like nothing you're really doing against me magically. Lord of Change will shut that down. Yeah, for sure. And he has these horde units that the Gaunt Summoner is going to pose a huge existential threat to. Mm. But if in order for that to happen, I need to cast the spell. And I can't do more than give him th- plus three to casting and re-rolls. No, no. So if he's still failing, it's like... Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd, if the dice are going right, I'd expect you to blow up most of his army because they, they don't really have mortal wound defense and no. they're actually very fragile. So it, it's a bad matchup for him. But uh, yeah, you're right. If you just roll like that, there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's that you can't position it any better to do anything because it's just, yeah, it's just dice, isn't it? To some extent, yeah. Like it, it's, um, I, there are definitely things I could have done. I could have, um, so there's a point where if I had retreated from combat with the Ogre Thaumaturge, I didn't because he was the only thing getting wounds through on those swordsmen. Mm. He had a good game, but it was, you know, at a cost. If I'd retreated with, with him at a certain point, and sprinted to the objective that the Eidolon, Eidolon of Mathan was on, and then not died to the Eidolon of Mathan, because crucially I wasn't charging the Eidolon, I wasn't going to do any damage to him. If I'd then survived his turn, I could have neutralized that objective and scored a point, which would have resulted in a draw overall. Right. But I think based on my dice, that's the best result I could have hoped for, mm. short of short of my dice suddenly waking up and giving me those mortal wounds I needed to kill the Eidolon. There's nothing like Yeah, do. yeah. Hmm. So then we went into um, our round three. Mm. Uh, what was your round three like, Tom? Out of interest. Oh, it's very, it was interesting, but strangely familiar, like, uh, just like a waking dream. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what, so what was it? What, who did you play against? What was it? Um, so there's always this moment where you're, uh, um, they come out, it's Swiss, so it's basically your performance is kind of measured between rounds and they match you up with people who've had similar numbers of wins and losses, mm. similar kill counts, that kind of thing. Uh, so they come out and they read, uh, Jim Reeves from the sheet. And, um, there's a point where they, they go, uh, Tom Senior, and I put my hand up. And then you look go, around for your opponent. And then, uh, then they go, Chris. And then I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> and we're standing next to each other. Yeah. And we're just like, we just burst out laughing, basically. <laughs> yep. And no one knows why. So round three is the battle report you were missing, everybody. It's the, uh, and it is the, the, the two armies meeting again. Siege Demons versus. The true Clash. But yeah. this time, the stakes of a tournament. Indeed. Yeah. And we were back on the first board that um, I played on, mm. the one with the big mountain in the middle. Yeah, which is a cool board. I really liked it. Yeah, I really liked it as well. It for an interesting game. Playing. Uh, what scenario is this? It's Total Conquest. 
some of the extremely confusing deployment pattern. Yeah, they need to fix that. That's t- so awkward to set up especially if you're trying to translate it onto a four by four board from yeah it was just like we basically just put dice at random points on the board <laughs> like, thinking we knew what we were doing and then gave up <laughs> <laughs> that's like uh, so you get 90 minutes per game and the first sort of 15 minutes are us just like trying to figure out what the hell to deploy with this uh, but the basic rules of it are uh there are uh how many points are there four there's four points two in each player's territory yes and basically it's just you have to stand on them to keep them. No, you, these, you this is the one them. where you can tag them and hold them. That's right. You get a point every turn that you have them. Yeah. And you get extra points for taking them for off your opponent. One. Yeah. It's a good scenario. It's one of my favorite scenarios of the General's Handbook 2017, actually. Apart from the deployment pattern. Apart from the deployment pattern, which is a nightmare. Yeah. But exactly. that, that actual kind of, the fights that creates with four points. Like imagine a, really like cool. a staircase from hell that's different <laughs> on a different side. It's horrible. <laughs> it's like MC Escher's deployment zone. Yeah. The, the deployment zone's horrendous. Uh, but it, it's good to have four points. I know, I do like the, um, letting you just capture it and then move away and it still be captured and um, I think that's great because what you see in other scenarios including the next scenario that got played in this tournament is that it forces units to just sit there still doing nothing um, for the entire game just to keep on taking out the points which is it's, it's not great yeah uh, but anyway, yeah, our two armies faced off, and once we eventually got on our shit together and deployed, um, we were in for an interesting game, actually. So, yeah, so I I set up um, kind of... I know what your deal is. Yeah. And I know what you'll prioritise of mine, I think. So um, I was a little bit unsure about the setup, but mm. set up one unit to pick cars off to the side, ready to uh, run forward and grab one of my objectives that was on my kind of narrow deployment edge. Yes. Set my brimstone horrors up in a curve, basically describing the staircase of deployment zone as far mm. forward as they could get. Another group of um, Pink Horrors and Lord of Change kind of nestled in the crook of that, with the Ogre Thaumaturge on one side and the Gaunt Summoner on the other, kind of ready to split around that mountain whichever way mm. I, you went. Because I knew I wanted to mortal wounds off the Castellan as fast as possible. Yes. Uh, I knew I wanted, and I knew I wanted to use the line of sight blocking terrain to avoid fire from both units adjudicators. Mm. Taking fire on, taking on the Lord of Change, taking fire on, or at least to force them to target different units. Yeah. I didn't want you wiping things out. I wanted you spreading the damage. fire. Yeah, spreading the damage out, I think, so I could absorb a little bit more rather than just having the Lord Change nuked, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, what about your deployment? What do you have in mind? Uh, so I was going to use, uh, knowing that you've got these uh, very, very good mortal wound spells and want to keep the formulas out of it, I p- deployed very centrally. My plan was simply to go up and hide behind a big rock and sort of see what happened, <laughs> um, which is pretty legit, to be honest. It turned out to be a good decision. Um, the uh, arches I placed like one side and the other because you have to cap the points before you own them uh, yeah. so you do actually kind of and uh, the great weakness of my army is uh, that you just have so few models that you've got to put units in certain places to get stuff and I would, re- I would redesign my army completely if I was going to do this tournament again I think just yeah. based on needing extra bodies um, but yeah so basically I had one unit adjudicated on either side of this giant rock so I'd, I'd, I'd have some shooting on whatever went either way basically but it, it was mostly for object- objective capture and the prime was obviously in space yeah, so you took the first turn, which I, I wasn't expecting. did take the first turn, um, because I wanted to be fancy and do something interesting with the Prime. Because I've used the... I'm still really new to using the Prime. And he's never been amazing for me, but he does take quite a lot of skill and he's quite situational. Um, but this time I decided to bring him down on the first turn in Chris's back line and try and assassinate something. Yeah, this is, there was a point in my back line behind the Lord of Change, behind the Gaunt Summoner, where you could fit him, basically. Yeah, that's right. And it was it was equidistant between the Lord of Change and the Gaunt Summoner and um, basically thought I could go in and once he comes down he drops his uh, 
You can drop a comet somewhere, so he picks a point on the battlefield, rolls d6, d6 defines the radius of the attack, anything caught within that takes d3 mortal wounds, it's extremely powerful, has a very long range as well, it's, it's actually it's a, one of the Stormcast's best possible shooting attacks, so there's, there's a way of playing the Prime where you bring him down early, behind a wall, and he just uh, serves as an artillery piece, doing guaranteed mortal wounds every turn, and you basically get off um, all the enemy heroes by turn three uh it can be potentially really devastating but i i used him more stupidly than that because <laughs> so, i could have brought him down behind that giant rock and just used him to nuke off your uh gaunt summoner in two turns um but instead i decided to bring him down in the back and try and charge the gaunt summoner <laughs> and get him off the 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 mortal wounds did do all reasonably well they, they you took three wounds off the lord of change which yeah. is actually that's the maximum he can take without going down his damage track right so um yeah that there's I was silly to split fire, but if my objective was to kill the Gaunt Summoner, I should have just nuked the Gaunt Summoner. And um, then there would be the potential of doing three mortal wounds to him, charging. He's got two attacks, but they're Bren 3 damage 3, so there's actually a reasonable chance you kill off the, kill the Gaunt Summoner straight away. Um, but I was too greedy. I wanted to do damage to as many things as possible, um, which is never a good... Uh, which is a mistake. But you want to focus damage on yeah. the thing you want to kill. That's always the wargaming thing, especially in AOS. So you want to make sure... If you've, if you've got an objective, go for that. Don't mm. get distracted, and I did, which is a mistake. Um, but even then, um, the the Prime did make his charge, but then whiffed his attacks. That was incredible. You rolled like a 1 and a 2. Yeah, he just completely missed. Like yeah. he, just, he, he didn't do anything. Uh, he could have um if both the attacks had gone through he would have killed the god summoner straight away like he would have would have gotten him off um but even then i mean it was it, exactly it was I, I know what you mean but when you refer to <laughs> getting another model off <laughs> not where my mind goes. Wipe, wiped him off <laughs> yeah, wiped exactly. off the board um I, i'm sure he would not have enjoyed it um i did try and kill the prime with the gaunt summoner's melee attack that's true because he's yeah. fine because technically that can work because the gaunt summoner only does one damage but when he wounds with his melee attack you roll two dice and if you can beat the bravery score mm. you remove a model from the unit right right so it's enough to beat bravery 10 or whatever on the prime yeah so it's a bit of a hail mary but it'd be very funny if it happened yeah that prime would be completely and the gaunt summoner just goes like eh! And it turns into <laughs> tentacles. tentacles. <laughs> <laughs> um, that didn't happen. However, because that was your first turn, then my turn too. Mm. Um, this, you know, I've, I've previously, ever since I painted the Lord of Change, I felt like I've, I've not always had the games where it feels like a Lord of Change, like a greater demon that's really quite scary. Yeah. Um, but this was one of those moments because Lord of Change mm. in the magic phase just ripped the prime to pieces. Oh, basically. yeah. Fucking obliterated him. <laughs> like, um, just um, opened up the big gateway to space underneath him is the way I see him yeah. and then just set him on fire until he went through it. Basically. Yeah, he just killed him with all his spells. And um, the thing with prime in the backfield is that you'd had to do something to him and I was hoping you'd have to distort your line or stay back or something or at least like... Yeah. Uh, alter the shape of your army to deal with the fact that he was there because you can't ignore him he's just gonna go around beating a lot of stuff up um but yeah he's got more to read it off by by some good spells just by the law of change yeah but yeah just by but himself. like the law of change i think on average does about between five to ten mortal wounds in, in, this, yeah. in the casting phase as you yeah. probably expect him to do is what he does yeah sure sure and also i just never expect the prime to survive like there's so much stuff in the game that just kills him outright pretty much if, once he comes down yeah uh so he's, he's got eight wounds and a three plus save he's very vulnerable in the game for the points he's 340 360 points something like that like he's quite expensive for what he is he's he's he could be a he can be a beat stick like if he's used as he was in my fourth game in fact but uh yeah that was not the way to use him in this game <laughs> but <laughs> i've learned that now I've yeah, learned about the prime. <laughs> that opened up the board a lot to me because man no longer to worry like yeah. you know, i was on screen yeah. and say he's not he's, he's not only he come down he's, he's now gone so hmm. um it allowed me to move forward so my plan at this point was like with everything having been tagged 
um, was to rush the, so the Gaunt Summoner. So it's interesting you went for the Gaunt Summoner because mm. I actually don't rate him against Stormcast very much at right. all. Like he's the least effective hero because mm. he doesn't do a lot more wounds. Um, my plan was actually to like, I mean, it's always, I always think of him as being on top of the Bailwind, kind of like this sort of mad magic genie kind of summoning fire across the battlefield. As soon as he starts running, it's mm. very funny. Like he's this little weird spindly old man yeah. with a weird hat that's also his head <laughs> just jogging. Yeah. Um, so my plan at that point was to send the, the brimstones, um, and the gaunt summoner basically <laughs> sprinting across the battlefield, um, on one side. Flap the Lord of Change to the other side to join the Pink Horrors mm. and and surge up that 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 side of the Pink Horrors with the Ogroid kind of hi- hiding behind the mountain, basically ready to split one way or the other. Mm. But actually, because my shooting and 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 spell range is so short, that was a very quick turn for me. Really, it was just like set the Prime on fire and then move up a bit. Yeah. But then then you got the double turn. I did get the double turn, which allowed me to move up uh, a little bit further. Um, I still, I was actually struggling with, because I decided to kind of move my Lord Change to the other side of the board. Hmm. The weakness of the double turn is, obviously the upside is if I'm in range to do stuff, I do loads of stuff. Yeah. The downside is if, if as in this situation, you hadn't fully committed which way your fulminators were going to go, it no. looked like they were going one way, but there's nothing stopping you going the other way. You right. hadn't overcommitted yet. Yeah, yeah. It meant that I had to kind of overcommit to a side, if yeah. that makes sense. Mm. So I sort of felt a little bit like, a little bit exposed uh, in some ways. I did manage to, um, the Pink Horrors with Bolt of Zinch did manage to get the, um, and, and some shooting managed to get the castle into one wound remaining. Yep. Um, didn't kill anything else, mm. I think, uh, at all. No. In that turn. Just kept, kept running, basically. Yeah. But however, that meant that by the time you got to your second turn, the, my brimstone horrors were getting like pretty close to adjudicators at that point. They, they like, they'd run twice, basically, yeah. and were like making the way up. Their shooting attack was actually pretty formidable as well, I think. Yeah, it's very good. It's just weight of dice is very it's good. It's weight of dice, but yeah. it's like, I managed to kill two adjudicators with it, I think. Yeah. So I was sort of like, at that point, Lord of Change, the pink horrors, the big scary stuff is on one side, mm. but actually the brimstones and a weird old man were coming up the other side in threatening one of your actual objectives. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so the way the deployment, the deployment is kind of lopsided, so you, one half of your force is often deployed far, further forth, further forward than the other half force. Um, and it, this is kind of interesting to me, cause like, uh, I was playing a game of chicken with the formulators, and I'd, yeah. I'd intended to do this for like the entire game and see where, which side your force is going to go to. And I've got a fairly good sense of what my formulators can accomplish against most things, uh, and, if I'm facing an army for the first time, I tend to just charge the formulators in because I can gauge the army based on what can or can't damage the formulators. That kind of tell, gives you a good a good overview of what what different units can do. So Namati can hurt formulators, for example, but Sword Masters of Hoeth can't. Um, yeah, right. You know, so you, you get a sense of what what dies quickly and what doesn't. Um, so I was actually just holding off with them, and and because I'd lost the prime, they were the only punch left. And that's the only way I was going to do anything to the game was with them. Uh, so the juice cases were there to be, to be bodies on points, um, but I did try and scoot the juice cases to the right um, across. Uh, so th- these are the juice cases that were the opposite your order of change, opposite your pink horrors, yeah, because they're actually very far back. Like you had a long way to actually travel with those guys to get to my point because the initial deployment was so far back even though you'd had a couple of turns of like moving and running uh, a lot of that was spent on redeploying of moving the um the the lord of change across before you started pushing up yeah so i had time on that flank like i could go and try and weigh in on the other flank but you'd kind of angled your uh ogroid thermoturge 
onto that other Frank. There's a kind of like he was ready to respond either way, basically. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I could see where he was going to go. He probably wasn't going to go around that side. Mm. And so I'm, I, I think like it was like turn three. I think when I eventually made the choice to send the formulators left, and yeah. send them into your. uh your Ogroid and your Horrors. You sent them into the Horrors because I think you wanted to stop me getting that point, right? And yeah, you so did successfully wipe out the Horrors. It was about bodies, so it was about like if the Horrors get onto that point, like they're, they're going to score it guaranteed. Uh, if I wipe out the Horrors, then there are only actually two bodies on that entire flank. And it's suddenly, a Gaunt Summoner. <laughs> yeah, there's the Gaunt Summoner and it's a, uh, a Minotaur. Yeah. Uh, so they they went in um, and with some shooting as well, they managed to wipe out all of the Horrors. And then we were in kind of an interesting position where it would take you a few turns to sprint up on the other side and actually take the point. But my formulators can be very fast and they could actually go and get your points in the backfield. And suddenly you were in a position where if I actually managed to push through and break through, I could actually maybe force a draw if I shot off your Gaunt Summoner. um, I could potentially draw the game, basically. Enter an extremely good Minotaur. <laughs> yes, you did very well. <laughs> so the Ogrothaumatage emerged from behind a hill, which he'll do in, in my fourth game as well. Um, killed the Lord Castellan. Then mortal wounded a Fulminator to death in the magic phase. Yeah. And then killed the other one in the combat phase. Yeah. Yeah. Which is pretty good going for a 160 it's point hero. Good going and not necessarily odds on, I'd say. No, I don't think so. I think he got, um, I think he got a bit spicy. He got, he was spicy, but he, he can, he can do that. That's he what's can good do about that. him. That's the thing. He's, he's got that mortal wound output as well on the charge and stuff like that, which is Yeah, nice. he didn't get to charge though. He got to um, add in. But his, his spell, I mean, that's really good. Yeah, his spell, like that, that came off. I think, um, cause he had taken some wounds. I think like if you'd broken through the line, um, I would have moved the Lord of Change back to yeah. deal with him a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I, like, it wasn't a total, like, um, it wasn't a lot for, by any means, but there was a chance. There's always but a yeah, chance. But this yeah, but this is, this is exactly what I'm talking about. This is the moment where, like, you, you did have a shot at mm. kind of pulling things back. And then the Lord, the Ogre Thaumaturge was just a big no button, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he is very fighty. The really crucial thing was the reason he could do that was because partly, you know, solid dice. Yeah. But it was also the fact that the castle was dead. Mm. So they didn't have those the, uh, defense yeah, the, of the lantern the, or anything like that. Yeah, they didn't have their, like, two plus save, like, randomly regenerating. Yeah, because he has random most stuff. of his attacks. You had four plus saves. Yeah. One, a lot of his attacks do, like, three damage, which is, like, a really healthy amount yeah, to be doing dominators. Yeah, definitely. Um, he's very good. He's just, like, he's very good. It's just that defensive buff is, is the thing that slows that damage down so much. Yeah. And, like, yeah. You can't really take it in return because he's only got a five up save himself. So yeah, yeah. Um, so that was really, uh, and then there was a sort of moment right towards the end where we weren't sure, like, if um, uh, so uh, well, I could quite make it onto the objectives, mm. but I could because by this point the Lord of Change was capable to kind of like completely open the can of mortal wounds onto the judicators. Yes. Um, on on that flank and sort of wipe them out completely and get ready to come move up and cap that objective. Mm. Um. All I had left to cap your other objective was the Gaunt Summoner who had run to hide behind a rock. Yes. And the Ogre Thaumaturge. And, and by this point, the Gaunt Summoner was on one health left. So very easily shootable off. Mm. So I made a bit of a risky decision to use Treacherous Bond to link him to the Ogre Thaumaturge, who only had two wounds left. Yes. Basically sacrificing the Ogroid, who was the hero of this game for me, really. Did very well, yeah. Um, to keep the Gaunt Summoner alive long enough to run him onto your objective. Mm. Um, however... Well, I'll like, probably let you tell it, but this was the most spectacular trick shot in history. Yeah, so I only had a few judicators left, but importantly... You only had one left. What, importantly, you had just prime. Yeah. Uh, and he shuffled across to just 
barely get a line of sight on the Gaunt Summoner. And, um, he let... It was like a hat sticking up above a rock, basically. Just, yeah, so you needed a headshot, basically. You just needed, like, a a magical headshot with his magical arrow. And the, the Judicator Prime, he has a special arrow where he he's on two places to hit because he's special. And uh, when he hits with his uh, arrow, you roll a d6, and that's the number of wound rolls that he gets, and it's three plus on those. And I think he rolled, like, five wound yeah. rolls in the end. And uh, <laughs> so... They all got through because the God's Owner doesn't really have a save. And, uh. Well, he doesn't because it's Rend 1, right? Yeah, so it's Rend 1, so he doesn't have a save. save so. But so the only save he has, of course, is his, um, 2 plus shift wounds off onto the Ogroid. Uh, the but the Ogroid didn't have enough wounds to have them he all had two shifted wounds off. Left. Yeah. So that one shot killed both the Ogroid. Well, it killed the God's Owner and then killed the Ogroid behind a nearby hill. Yes. Because of what bit of treacherous magic gone wrong. Yeah. Which single-handedly earned you 280 kill points. In yeah, the final. which helps, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I did come close to destroying that flank. Mm. I did come really close to destroying the flank. And I uh, imagine if I had 360 points worth of prime to bring down in the third turn instead of just like throwing him away in the first. Yeah. It might have been a, quite a different game. At it that could point. have been, yeah. It was really interesting. Uh, but it was still, it's still really close. It's still a really good game, actually. Yeah, uh, it was. And, and yeah, and the scoreline didn't really betray how close it felt, actually. Like, and that's a, that's the theme. That's going into my fourth game. Yeah. Yeah. I killed your entire yeah. army by the end of it, which yeah, is like yeah. a, a thousand point. If, if, if I lost, I wiped basically. That's what happened with my army. Cause if, if something had gone chronically wrong, uh, everything else was so exposed. Cause I've got so few units. Yeah. I totally, just gets totally. eaten up. Um, but yeah, so that, um, well, I think Jim said this at the time, but, I, I won, Tom. You did, yeah. <laughs> yeah like, like when it mattered, put it down. And back. this, uh, so uh, the way to think about this is that, like, this is the beginning of, you know, this was, this was the, the two armies encountering each other for the first time. Yeah. Possibly just deploying the prime in a kind of not this guy again panic. Yeah, it's almost know. like, um, target acquired, like, this thing's back, we need to destroy it as quickly as we possibly can, perhaps too quickly, perhaps overstretching. Yeah. So the, uh, we, we were talking before the game actually started about kind of where we were and what was going on narratively with this. And it, and it felt like it was, uh, a Sawcast Force going back into uh, the same place where that cult, your cult, initially existed. Yeah. Hearing, you know, rumours of chaos uprisings there, of, you know, uh, stories of uh, old creatures returning, like the, the Ogroid Thaumaturge, and then suddenly they see a Lord of Change and horrors just pouring out of the mists again, and they're like, he's back, everybody! <laughs> yeah, particularly because your general is the Castellan who used to rule yes. this place. Yes. Like, and got gored to death by a former colleague as happens sometimes yeah so the prime uh this is the old chaos lord um the prime destroyed him with galmaraz and he was reforged as the castellan who is the new kind of go-to general in my army at the moment and it's almost like sigmar is sending that castellan as sigmar does back to his old homelands to actually deal with the chaos there yeah so it's, it's totally in in keeping with what sigmar would do and he's and he's been you know rebuffed for that now and yes like, yeah new threat. so this for me feels like it's the beginning of empire strikes back right like this is <laughs> yeah. the this is the big setback that the good guys face at the start of the sequel hmm. um it would be boring if you had won <laughs> you know I mean? right yeah, from yeah. a story point of view it's yeah, like this yeah. guy oh there's a lot of changes back he's gone now <laughs> like, if you replace the attacks with just giant birds and yeah, you know crazy magic shit that, that's definitely it it's like the rebel base being destroyed yeah and the prime being away. the prime being taken out is a bit like you know how like a lot of sequels or movie sequels and stuff start with like the, the the great you know, secret weapon that won them the get won them the day at the end of the first movie mm. gets like destroyed in the first act of the second movie. It's like, oh no, the stakes are higher now. Because yeah, exactly. Of that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, the prime's been taken of action. It's almost like you need a big dragon or something. To yeah, it's almost like something. Yeah, exactly. A whole new chamber needs to open up and come at this. Yeah, and um, and but the this is only the kind of the beginning, right? Like yeah. there are other weapons in the Zinch Bank, mm. um, including Skyfires. <laughs> <laughs> They're coming. Yeah, it's um, gonna be interesting. So yeah, so, but yeah, no, so that was cool. So I was, I was 2-1 up. 
Um, how was your fourth game? We should probably, I guess, uh, we both have really interesting fourth games, so I don't want to speed through them too much, but we should definitely. Uh, mine was pretty quick, actually. Like, it was, um, uh, I fought a, uh, a vampire army, no, undead army, and it was led by, uh, a vampire hero called Vaudre, who is just the, like the only name, one of the few named characters in the Legion of the Gash book. He's just like a random yeah. named vampire on Zombie Dragon. And he is absolutely great. <laughs> Why is he so terrifying? What? I heard his name a lot that day. So he has a breath attack. Um, his dragon has a breath attack that just does, uh, hits on three plus and just does six mortal wounds. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, yeah. So it just, he goes and been, uh, on a three plus, he kills a hero. And that's just outright. And that's even before you get into what his, uh, damage is in combat. Right. Uh, so in, in combat, um, he doesn't have any attacks. Um, he doesn't have many attacks that are below two damage. Like he has a bunch of like three damage stuff. Um, and he's just got an attack prof- a profile that lets him attack quite a lot of these taking i think legions of blood which is kind of like a, a gives vampires extra stuff he's also got uh he, as the general he can take an artifact um which is uh colloquially called the, the sippy cup <laughs> for some reason <laughs> but it's like a chalice of blood mm. and what you do is you um you drink it's once per battle you drink it and you get d6 wounds back right. and he's also really tough anyway uh so he's got loads of wounds because obviously he's on a dragon so he's just an absolutely it's my army had nothing to do with him at all like he um by the time my prime was powered up enough to deal with him, uh, he had already wiped out my entire army. <laughs> and I had gotten a charge off him, on him with my judicators. And the thing is, he's got like, uh, Undead has deathless minion saves on top of yeah. all their other saves. And he made a lot of those and a lot of my attacks, especially against the formulators that meant like I, I couldn't really layer the damage on him. Um, but in turn three, like my, my time, my entire army was dead by turn three simply because of Audrey. He just killed everything. <laughs> Jeez. He's just killed everything. How many points is he? Uh, 440, something like Right. That. Yeah. 450. Uh, and it's one of those cases where, like, AOS balance is different at a thousand points. Yes. Like, certain very big monster models, like, uh, more crushers, unless you have a, a certain tools to deal with them, basically just dominate. Mm. Um, so that's not true for all armies. So some things will kill a more crusher and then you're fine. But I had nothing that was capable of dealing with yeah totally i think i think like i was initially a bit worried about taking a lot of change at a thousand points getting there and seeing that like almost everybody had like a A 300 400 point big monster thing was like oh actually this was the right decision rather than just get tabled yeah for sure um it's definitely the right thing to do um the the problem with my army the way it's built is that i don't get to do all my big damage at the same time so Mm. the formulators can go in and they will do their damage and that's a lot but the prime isn't going to do that damage until turn three until he has six attacks and then he then he starts to get the damage output um but i brought him down on turn three he charged for drained sorted him uh then he it was i'd lost the game already but i just wanted to see how much the prime could kill uh he went up the table and he uh in one round of combat he got a unit of blood knights down to one and blood knights are pretty good <laughs> yeah uh, so he like if you deploy him correctly he can kill almost like loads of stuff like he can just go go completely horribly you know on tilt and destroy stuff but you can't do it at the same time as you want the formulator to be doing stuff necessarily because often the formulator is mm. charged before that so it's just the way that my army structured has that weakness in it that is unable to deal with like a, a big giant very very fast threat that's the other thing he was able to cross the board very quickly with a spell that gives gives him five inch movement so he's moving uh like 17 inches and he's charging and stuff so right it's just it's it's a brutal thing you have to know you have to build your armies to be able to soak that up i think right. that's a, I'd, I'd rethink the way i built my army with after that game yeah uh, but it was pretty much a tabling after that point that was the that scorched earth which is the one where you can hold yes. objectives for points in your own territory and then burn them in the backfield yeah not a huge fan of that scenario i like it but mm. for me 
so maybe to continue that point mm. about what works and what doesn't in a thousand points, um, Scorched Earth is one which I think requires a different, a modification in a thousand points. Right. Um, I think it's, and particularly on four foot by four foot boards, mm. um, it has, it uses six objectives, um, which are quite high value and end up very tightly packed in four foot by four foot. Yeah. In a way that, it just, I mean, like, ultimately, it probably doesn't change the balance of the game, but it means that, like, certain armies are going to find that super rewarding, mm-hmm. and some armies are going to find it very, very difficult. And, yeah. like, it just doesn't feel like quite the spirit of the scenario, because it bunches everything up mm-hmm. a lot. I feel like um a thousand point AOS is, is almost a different game in some ways, too. Yeah. It rewards a lot of the same skills, and you can practice stuff, certainly. Yeah. But... um I think both the game we played and, and the scenario, well, the first, uh, the game we played was good, but the scenario was a mess to try and adapt it to, mm-hmm. to, um, to adapt the deployment pattern for, th- for a four foot by four foot board. Yes. The next one felt like the scenario just needed something to make it kind of like, it doesn't mean like an official adjustment, like an official alternate, like I'd love it if they just started printing battle plan deployment patterns for both four f- square and rectangular boards, mm. like for any size, right? Yeah. Like, Rectangles the assumed default, but it's really not how a lot of people play the game. It'd be great to see that mm-hmm. experimented with. The trouble with the scenario, so basically, um, you have to stand on the points to keep them. And at a thousand points, if you're Stormcast, you don't have many units. <laughs> so, yeah. um, just because of the army I've taken and just the nature of it and the way it's pointed, I have to stand five units of Judicates on one, five units of Judicates, five Judicates on the other, and uh, a castle and formulator on the other and as soon as i send my formulator off to do anything i lose that point <laughs> yes exactly so it's and that sucks and the other thing about the scenario is that you can go if you occupy an enemy point uh a point of the enemy territory you can destroy it at the end of your turn for three points and certain armies can just do that in the first turn if you lose the first turn to iron jaws and they get off all of their rolls which happened to chimp in this in this fourth yeah. game they run up and they burn both points the first turn and that's not a game. <laughs> yeah. The story, the story is not. I think it's good. been revised. I think it may have even been FAQ'd. But I we thought were... it had, but we were checking afterwards and we yeah. struggled to find I, it. I think the answer to this, honestly, is for a thousand points, Scorched Earth should have four objectives, not six, hmm. because more armies are going to be able to do more to protect two objectives yeah. than to protect three. That's the big issue, right? Because a thousand points, you have fewer units. But then, um, uh, Chimp and his opponent, uh, they house, house ruled it to have four points and the Iron Jaws just ran up and killed this points. But Jim does have an unusually low model count. I wouldn't say it's unusually low at a thousand points for like AOS. 14 models. Um, but that's the same as I had in my army. Right. I suppose I'm coming from perspective of like, if you I had lots of horrors, blue but, horrors, like yeah. I did have like 60 models, but like, but, but the, I suppose you're going to have huge, I suppose. So here's the thing. You're going to have huge variance anyway, at a thousand mm-hmm. points between anywhere between like 80 and 10 models, probably in a thousand point army. Yeah. But at 2000 points, it's going to be equivalent variance, but a higher floor. Mm. And so you're still going to be able to like protect stuff. And also just the board's bigger. So getting to stuff and it means less to lose one because then you're not necessarily going to immediately lose one next to it and so on. Potentially, though, um, it's still four foot from you to the opponent. Yeah, and true. that doesn't stop the corn and it doesn't stop Iron Jaws just being able to go up and burn the points. Yeah, you, and that's you, it. you're probably right, actually. I'm uh, just trying to find a universe where this works in, in any point value. Like, yeah. I like the idea in principle. Hmm. Um, but it just, yeah, for me, it doesn't feel quite right somehow. No, I, I, no, I don't like it at all. I think it's fundamentally broken for certain armies and certain matchups. It, it doesn't result in good games at all. So any army that is fast and can get up in turn one, that, that's already Yeah, broken. so so the army I faced against was an interesting Wanderer's army that I think it just, oh, yes. Jim just lost to in the previous game. Yeah, yeah. Um, which was... Um, 
big blocks of like wood elf archers basically mm. big blocks of units um who their allegiance ability is if they're within six inches of a board edge they can in the movement phase leave that board edge and come back on anywhere on the same board edge mm. so they can just sort of like teleport down up and down the side of a board and their general was a nomad prince and his ability is or he had like a special command trait or something that means that he can take units from nearby take them off a board edge and then bring them back on any board edge right um, which sort of sufficiently manipulated creates this kind of bizarre French fast situation where wood elves run off one side of the board, they come on the other right, one, yeah. like in a game of asteroids or something, and they go back off that side and come back in the back. Yeah. And so I knew that was a huge threat basically straight away. Like, and these are blocks of 20 archers. Like my entire army's fucked if they get into the back line. Yeah. So I deployed really carefully to screen mm. like my entire side of the board. And I actually started pretty well. Um, I opted for the Bellwind because big blocks of infantry, you say, um, and was effective at kind of very quickly eating through some of those big blocks of archers before they could really do anything. Yeah. Moved Ogroid forward so that, uh, to kind of block off one, one, one side of the board was kind of blocked off in terms of him getting to my objectives by the Bellwind, positioning the Bellwind at the side of the board rather than in the center. Hmm. It meant that it was, it was a deliberate choice because it meant that I couldn't cover the entire board with my three foot by three foot bubble, but it meant that there was an obvious place where he had to go. So my idea was to like deny a big chunk of the board, send the Lord of change up that way to stop burning his objectives and then, um, shut off and then, and then slow him down as much as I could on the side where he would then funnel his troops. And it, it started, um, it was a really interesting game. And so I'm going to, I'm going to say this, so, um, the score, the scoreline in terms of kills at the end of the game yeah. was a thousand points to me. I killed every single one of his models, 120 points to him. He killed one unit of pink horrors mm. and I lost by two points right. on objectives. Mm. And the, that came down to, it was a weird one. Cause I was really, I, I felt a bit rock and a hard place because if I start to move up the board with the Lord of change too quickly, he just moves his, his arches in and the Lord of change dies. Like I, I don't, I can't withstand shooting on that thing. But if I don't, um, because he had this ability to teleport to any board edge, as soon as I start to move forward and let him do that, mm. I lose all my objectives yeah. like straight away. So I had to play conservatively or defensively at the beginning and did, and did loads of damage. I like, started to pull things up. Like the Ogroid again was a huge hero. He basically charged up the side to prevent them from deploying too close to me. They then deployed as close as they could to the Ogroid, shot him with everything. Yeah. He got down to one wound but survived with the help of a destiny dice. Then on the next turn, he did a fire blast, killed the nomad prince. So he, they could no longer teleport to any board edge, which mm. was huge and then ran away and hid behind a barn. But because they were still on that board edge, that meant that they could teleport down to my edge of the board that way. Yeah. And he managed to get one unit into like basically like a four inch, four by five inch pocket at the bottom of the board where there was just space for one unit. Mm. And then that unit, not only uh, then that unit then made a nine inch charge onto my pink horrors that were guarding the objective and then wiped all the pink horrors out before mm. I could use my destiny dice one to bring them back. Yeah. So my entire plan to like fully tarp it that corner failed basically what i should have done again to focus on mistakes rather than f- like that charge necessarily was commit the brimstones earlier to that corner of the board right. when i knew he probably couldn't easily get to the middle but the problem is i didn't do that lost the pink horrors he immediately burned that objective which got him two points mm. um if he hadn't made that charge i would have won the game they just came down to that charge roll like if he hadn't made that nine inch charge i would have held that objective for an extra turn earned an extra point 
um, I would have been able to move things into position to defend it. He probably would never have burned it. I lost by two points in the end, which is the two points he got for yeah. burning that objective. Mm. By the end of the game, I had burned all of his objectives and killed every single one of his units, but I just couldn't come back from... Is the is the random D3 as well? Like, there's loads of yeah. I don't like about this scenario. <laughs> there's yeah. loads of stuff. You, you put all the... You take all these risks to do that, to burn the enemy objectives, and you could just... Well, you get one, you get three. It's just arbitrary. Mm. <laughs> it's, it can it's, almost it's work as a comeback mechanic. It's just... But you, right, it being random is really dodgy like i could have also won the game hmm. if um because i i burned all three of his objectives and i got one point two point and three points right and if i'd gotten three for all of them i would have drew and would i have earned that necessarily well, yeah you know what i mean it's like about play then yeah yeah it's weird it's yeah it was it was a weird game it was it was fun in some ways because it was like um it was a, a fun person to play against it was an interesting army but like it was again i think maybe this is a scenario like it it was a, a weird rock and a hard place thing where his army moved in such a weird way yeah. because the other, the, the other super powerful thing about that ability is like, cause they've just made all these changes in the 40 K FAQ, which I guess is news that we didn't talk about, mm. but um, to rein in deep strikers. Yeah. So like in 40 K now, deep strikers can only come down in their own territory on the first turn. Mm. And that's to, that's to just let's get rid of this. I'm in your backfield straight away thing. Yeah. Let's make, let's make it less important to screen against deep striking every minute of every second. Mm. Cause it is so powerful in any objective based game. Um, but if there is a down- downside to that, um, which you've experienced, like if there is a downside to that backfield early deep strike is it can leave units in the wrong place. Yeah. You know, if units outpace you and run across the board, then your own territory can be being threatened and your deep strikers are huffing along to catch them. Mm. The thing that was so hard to deal with for me with the, that wanderer ability is yeah, they've come down here and hit my territory, but they're still on a board edge and that board edge gets a particular on a four foot by four foot board gets them pretty much wherever Where they want to go in their go. own territory. Yeah. So like they could teleport up and down the side of the board, you know, turn by turn, but nonetheless, like that's a huge territory. It's like, yes, it's like movement becomes almost irrelevant when they're also arches of 20 inch range. So it's like, hmm that sort of foot and a half of that board just becomes this kind of global kind of sort of zone. Like they're on a, like a rail that moves up and down the board. Yeah. Um, so it's super hard to deal with. And again, an instance of where I think building an army for these kinds of events is a very effective thing. Like if you know, you're on a four foot board, some abilities are just crazy good. Yeah. Um, Ogroid was however, a giant hero again, nice because he killed all of those guys on my, on the bottom thing. Yeah. Then he killed, he killed the Nomad Prince and then he killed the Waywatcher in, in single combat. And then he was finally allowed to rest. <laughs> like, <laughs> and the Lord of Change, like, I had a really cool moment at the end when I knew I probably couldn't win because of that one moment. Basically, mm. I just couldn't pull it back. Like, I needed lucky D3 rolls, but I just decided like, well, fuck it. I've got one turn left. I am going to kill a kill everything mm. and be burn all your objectives and the lord of change just went incredibly ham like killed loads of uh, arches in combat then ran across the board more wins loads of more of them off and then just kept going and killed more of them yeah, yeah burned every objective so that was really cool it was really like i don't really regret that loss too much because it was down to something i really can't control no. um i think but it was like one of those sort of like oh kind of really close losses mm. but it was a really really fun afternoon and like it was really cool to to mostly apart from playing you well i really like playing as you but like to playing as new armies yeah of course yeah yeah uh, yeah yeah it was a really good day i enjoyed it um it made me feel as though the stormcast need rejigging to work at a thousand points as in i would probably ally some stuff in to yeah. actually make them work and a thousand points is just a very different you need kind of a certain number of bodies i think 
and certain armies can't produce that necessarily with the battle line of options they have and the type of army they are. Yeah. I think it's all going to be quite good. I definitely misplayed a few games, but um, I really felt the lack of, like, I just needed a big unit of something just to sit on points and to I find that the mistakes that were losing me games were things very much to do with um, the right times to press advantage and move on to objectives. And those are good lessons to learn, I Mm. think. Like, ultimately, like, yeah, like, that the final game for me, yes, it was a nine-inch charge that just turned the entire game. Yeah. But I could have protected against that possibility better by recognizing what I had that was safe earlier. Yeah. If that made sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, But, like, mm. yeah, I, I, even though variance can be a bit of a pain in the ass sometimes, I do feel like there's enough meaningful stuff you can do to guard against it. Mm. Like, the most important thing is I came away thinking that even my losses were, like, well, especially my losses were like experiences that I can apply. Yeah, for not sure. just mm. you know. Oh, that was uh, lost from the beginning or whatever, which mm. is a bit of a rubbish mm. feeling. Yeah, the, I think the only as uh, so Jim had an amazing weekend, uh, amazing day where he kill, he killed more than any other army on the day. Yeah, he was first on kill points. He was first I was on kill third, points. I think, in the end, because I had 2,000 Yeah, hills. I think he tabled three armies of the four. Jesus. In, uh, he took... Um, I think he took Vaudre as well, and uh, did very well with him. He's very good. Uh, he also had uh, Arcan, which is one of the sort of princes of the undead. Uh, he's got a spell called Curse of Years, which has about a 15% chance to just wipe a unit, any unit. Uh, and you sort of roll a, a bunch of dice, and for any sixes, you roll them again. If you roll five plus, they get to keep rolling. And then any four plus, you keep rolling. Three plus, you keep rolling. And at that point, the unit just dies and crumbles into dust. Uh, so he managed, he managed to Curse of Years, a unit of Gore Grunters, and a unit of Brutes, I think, across the across the day. Uh, but he also took, like, 10 diewalls for battle line and he took uh, an amazing old model called the corpse cut <laughs> a wheelbarrow which is just a wheelbarrow full of um gross really gross dead dudes who is undead dudes who are still alive and screaming in agony um and that inspires the diewalls to have a four plus save and uh, <laughs> does some other things as well um but yeah actually uh, had a terrible game in the last game largely because of scenario because he was playing against iron jaws and iron jaws just if you get all of your iron jaw kind of speed abilities off in the first turn they run up they burn everything that's it really like just he scored loads of points on the d3s he rolled and it was just almost no coming back from that and it feels like no scenario should ever allow that to happen yeah i think i agree with you having initially tried to play the kind of devil's advocate on this Mm. i think i think it's too swingy it's like that that one's bad and the one that wasn't on the day uh, called knife to the heart is bad as well i think that's the one where the long board uh, also doesn't work on a four foot by four foot board again yeah that doesn't work either and also um yeah, that's the one where basically there are two points. And if you go and catch the enemy point, you get those points. Uh, or you could just sit on your own point and just score for the rest of the game. And then the actual win comes down to kill points. Um, but if the armies, you know, depending on the armies on the board, uh, if one person has a unit of 40 skeletons and loads of grave sites around, they just sit on their own point. And then the other, your opponent looks at that and goes, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to kill that and get that point without sacrificing my own point. And so both, you, it ends up being a field battle. It ends up being people going into the middle and trying to kill as many points as they can. And AOS is not a good game when it's a field battle. Like, uh, it's got to be about objectives. I think, I think having objective play basically corrects loads of the kind of unit versus unit balance point stuff mm. that would otherwise occur. Yeah. Uh, just because movement is actually part of uh, how units are pointed and not just their killing output. Uh, so yeah, th- th- there are two bad scenarios that I'd like to see fixed for uh, General's Handbook and one deployment zone nonsense that I'd like to see fixed in the next General Handbook. Yeah, uh, yeah, indeed. Uh, but hopefully we'll see that. Yeah, cool. 
It was a good day. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I really did as well. It was really good. And, um, yeah, it was nice. I'd certainly do a, I think there's going to be another one in a few months. So I'll go on to that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. That was, yeah, I had a really good time as well. Like it was nice mm. to, um, just, yeah, see lots of different armies and, and mm. place exactly averagely. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I did pretty poorly, but, uh, it was. Are you in ninth? I think so. Out of 12. Yeah. I, I came six. So which is, yeah, exactly. Just um, yeah. Extremely medium. <laughs> bang or medium. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, I will do better next time. I'll play better and bring a better army. Let's do some questions from the internet. Let's do it. Or specifically our inbox. First up, uh, Chris, aka Ascanius on Discord writes, Dear Crypt in Firsten and Tomb Banshino, which is pretty good. Ooh, I like That's it. Pretty good. That's a, some effort. Um, that? It occurred to me while reading some of the new battle tomes, namely Daughters of Cain and Legions of Nagash, that there are certainly a lot of drawn out, long drawn out conflicts sprinkled into the background of Age of Sigmar during the Age of Myth and the Age of Chaos. And mm. it's possible Games Workshop deliberately set up these lengthy previous ages in the lore as to give themselves a deeper history to potentially exploit or explore in the future the same way they're currently doing for the Horus Heresy. Am I reading too much into this world building decision? What do you think? And then a bonus Primark question, which we can get to first, I imagine. <laughs> Canonically, Petarabo is the wargamer of the family, and Sanguinius is presumably the painter, but who writes the fan fiction? Thanks for potting, Chris. So for me, the answer to this is fairly clear. Mm. It's the lion, is the, is the, is the fan fiction writer. And you can tell, because he's basically the, uh, self-insert anti-hero. Of the Primarch. Oh, set. so he's he's the fanfic writer who puts themselves. He's the, the moody and makes them really He's the cool. moody Evanescence self-insert yeah. anti good and baddie character. You know what I mean? The person who's cool enough to be a baddie, mm. but has ultimately a heart of gold. That's and everyone that's thinks they're they're the new cool now, but actually it's them. Is that they quite, put themselves yes. in the story? Yeah, he, yes, deliberately. Yeah. To, that's that's why I think the lions. I think that makes that, yeah. that's a good sell. Yes, like. I mean, I, you know, Magnus writes a book, but it's not fan fiction. It's no, it's bizarre it's, noodle. Destroys your yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's it destroys your mind with its. It's like that. Um, uh, what was the book that was written from the perspective of a fetus? Um, that was written by uh, what? Oh, um, Tristan Shandy. Not tr- oh, no, not, not Tristram Shandy. Though it would be, maybe Magnus would write Tristram <laughs> Shandy, actually. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of genre spanning. Yeah. It's nonsensical, <laughs> self-defeating. Uh, yeah, no, that's very Magnus, actually. Yeah, it is, Tristram. yeah. That's his fan fiction. Indeed, yeah. Yeah. Tristram Shandy is just Magnus the Red fan fiction. You heard it here first. Okay, yeah, that is true. How about, okay, so yeah. Uh, Age of Myth. Yeah, it's, I think you also need a lot of space between the old world and, and the current realm situation to make it seem as though that it could happen maybe i mean i mean i mean to your question definitely yes they're always putting hooks in for stuff yeah like um one line about a skaven submarine in a battle tome could one day be a range of models in a in a boxed game about underwater combat i think games which habitually do this in their writing where they just sort of like have little just little hooks little spokes just yeah i think some of those those hooks are for players as well for sure it could turn into a box game it could also just turn into a rad conversion yeah definitely definitely and the age of myth is 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 potentially like that i mean you could have lots of you could invent heroes for the age of myth that have survived into the current realm situation i think it's more about giving themselves space like i don't think specifically that it's going to be like a horse heresy style background event for age of sigma because age of sigma to be honest feels like living through the Hmm. the most important time of yeah 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 yeah. um i think it's more likely that it it means that 
the the big crucial difference for Age of Sigmar compared to the old world is that sort of the space for everything to exist, both in terms of the size of the realms, but also the amount of time that has passed. Mm. Like you can always find a space or a time to insert the kind of civilization you have in your mind or the crazy high fantasy idea you want to execute, yeah. which they can benefit from obviously in terms of new stuff in the future. They can justify basically anything they want to do with any faction at any time, basically, mm. which is very freeing. But also I think it's there. I think it's predominantly there for players. I think, I really think it's a response to how, uh, how, uh, restrictive the old world was mm. relative to this and relative to 40k as well. I think it's not a good, like, I don't think a very tightly mapped out fantasy world is a good fit for a miniatures game. I, I know I've said that before, but I don't think, I think, I don't think it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I can't imagine them going and writing an Age of Myth, um, kind of series of books mm. or anything like that because you would want to, develop the age of sigma setting more than you'd ever want to develop a lot of a lot of books have an age of myth portion yeah bear in mind like a lot of stormcast backstories are this is who i was during the age of myth and then i got that's true true. so you've seen it in glimpses Mm. but it's often there to just sort of furnish the origins of a character who's presently a big gold man yes that's true it is um it's nice to do flashbacks to a time when the gods actually fought um which is also another which is kind of the primarchs fighting in um Mm. Horus Heresy, I suppose, but it was when Sigmar actually went down along sat and stood next to Nagash on a battlefield and fought the Chaos Gods, right? Like, it's that kind of stuff you'd never actually be able to make models of that you want to kind of evoke. Yeah, I guess, I guess I want to read that book actually. Yeah, that would be kind of cool actually. Mm. (laughs) Maybe we talked ourselves out of this. Yeah. Okay, well, answer (laughs) in short, yes. Next up, Mr. Juice writes, Dear Painting Mans, I've just this moment realized that every time I have to paint a visible eyeball on something, I end up painting it either red or green. I don't think there's a reason I default to those colors other than it being what I'm used to. So the big old eye I have to paint, the next big old eye I have to paint will have to escape this ocular comfort zone and do, I don't know, blue or something. My question is this. Are there any painting-related comfort zones that you want to try and break out of? Hmm... Break out of is an interesting way of putting it because mm. like, like you're saying earlier, there are certainly like, you know, habits that can kick in new techniques. You can learn to get better at stuff. Mm. I don't know. I definitely have things I typically do, but I don't know. It's always linked to like what looks right on the model to my mind. Yeah. I'm, I'm more about avoiding boredom than kind of breaking out of things i do it's more like i bought a painting gold on stormcast so i've bought some silver net and so i feel like i can dive into my shame pile to do something a bit different so after the star drake i'll do a couple of small heroes and after that i'll probably do a unit and so i think it's more about that than actually kind of getting out of it's more about painting different scales of things for me than actually breaking out particular techniques because lots, all the models require lots of different techniques i'll tell you what i do have an answer to this actually and it's my basing I think, oh, I, yes. like, when I first started painting, I decided that I would deliberately do very simple bases. Um, and then I've sort of slightly grown in complexity, but I've gotten sort of set on a particular color scheme and a particular kind of way of doing it. And I mm. tend to not spend loads of time on bases because I much prefer just the painting of the models. Um, I think the next army from scratch that I do will have a very different basing scheme. Right. I'm not too worried about clashing my own terrain board because... No, it doesn't... Having played on lots of terrain boards now... It doesn't matter loads. It's fine, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so... The next time I do an army from scratch, for example, I think I will, and it might not be an AOS, I don't think I will 
I think I'll spend a little bit more time on bases and I'll mm. try something new yeah, because it's, it's become, that has become a genuine comfort zone, which is like, yeah, it's dark reaper, dry brushed with rust gray, dab brushed with screaming skull with a wash and some tufts. Like, yeah, like that's, mm. I can move past that. I think I think you'd uh, experiment with some cork, some fake water, all I'm, that kind of stuff. I've been thinking about experimenting with cork, Tom. Yeah. Interesting. That's the whole new, that's the new basing realm, isn't it? Indeed. It's just cork, cork, lovely cork. Next question comes from Ross, who writes, Hello, hobby podders. I was interested in your dis- discussion around your vintage collection slash sh- childhood shame piles. I've taken the third path between start fresh and update all your old models. I have a complementary away kit scheme that is deliberately simpler than I'm using on older models that would otherwise be so far down my backlog as to never get reworked. A quick visual example. He sent a photo. My core scheme is very cartoony with bright whites and shell- shell-sated black edging it's time consuming but gives a finish i adore and he attaches a picture of some very nice towel yeah, done sweet. as described um very much so that's for shadow war conversely my 2003 fire warriors featured my teenage take on what if stormtroopers but also towel hmm. hampered by my insistent on un- unthin paints they're a pretty embarrassing bunch i only keep around to play larger games with the away kit pattern inverts my core scheme and skips highlighting to make something that looks similar without being an unfinished version of my other models. I'm finding it pleasant, to, uh, finding a pleasant break from my core work that still allows me to refine my techniques. By targeting previously unpainted models and reworking choice units helps me get towards a wholly painted force for playing a game with and expand on. So I guess I should have a question. Why not do different things with your older models, eh? Cheers, Revolver Ross a lot. <laughs> it's an interesting idea, like... Yeah, yeah. yeah. We were talking earlier about doing slightly different things with your paint schemes just to have a bit of a break or kind of differentiate things. But I really like the idea of, um, I think when you understand your color scheme well enough, inverting colors and finding new, easier ways of using those colors mm. is a good way of speeding up projects. Actually, that's exactly what's happened with my Zangle. Yeah. And I feel like you do need a bit of variety within a force as well. And inverting colors is a really good way of doing it. Um, I have actually like one of my test models was invert, was doing like a blue armored warrior with a gold shoulder pads and stuff like literally just inverting the hammer Sigma and it was a disaster. Right. Uh, but it's, it, so you have to be smart about it. Uh, I think it's great for tower, especially when you've got like oversuits and undersuits. And this is true mm. for space Marines and stuff where like inverting those can just work really well. And in fact, it gives you loads of, loads of variety. Uh, I've tried to build it into my stormcast army by just doing different units with different, patternings and things like that but mm. it's not quite not quite the same principle no but nonetheless i think it's um i think i mean the, the the core of this is like i mean if you're not excited about painting something but you nonetheless want to play with it then re- yeah do the sensible thing reduce your traditional paint scheme to its core elements mm. and then just do that is probably mm. the best yeah uh, which is what has been done here which is super cool yeah it is really good really nice uh chris writes Dear Minis Monthly, I've been marathoning the podcast while bagging up my comic book collection as in, and have enjoyed it immensely, particularly your digressions on sportsmanship and the onus of mutual fun times that war games place on all their players. My question goes slightly Magic the Gathering, rules wang, but I'll try and keep it brief. In multiplayer magic, a player that has resigned or been killed immediately ceases to exist. Really? Wow. <laughs> Brutal tournaments. Yeah. All their stuff vanishes and anything targeting or attacking them stops doing those things. Frequently, a player will cast a big spell or attack with a lot of men in order to go kill a player and reap some side benefit, usually gaining a lot of life. The doomed player can simply resign at this point to deny their opponent that benefit. One of the people I play with objects vociferously whenever someone does this, arguing that it constitutes poor sportsmanship. Mm. Are they right? If you have a teammate still in the game, I would argue that resigning at this point is a smart move. 
even in a free-for-all, is the person with enough firepower to kill people entitled to even more stuff just because? Keep up the good podding, Chris. P.S. Why are Skaven so cute in my mind, but so gross in reality? <laughs> well, the, the reality's wrong. They are cute. They're just <laughs> cute. They're weird and they're gross, but they are also cute. Yep. And they're cute not just because they're little, my, like, micey rat people, hmm. but because they're so ambitious. They and really so do try hard, don't yeah. they? Yeah. She's very, very nice. It's, 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 it, yeah. It's not laudable necessarily because they are murderers. That's but true. Everyone's in a murderer, some ways, aren't, they? aren't we all? <laughs> <laughs> Sigma, aren't we all just murderers? Mm, interesting question. Uh, so to get this right, people resign to get out of giving away victory points in magic. No, I don't think it's quite that. I think it's more that, um, like if, when, when the sort of, um, victory is a foregone conclusion, mm. you can sort of resign immediately to deny the rest of the effect. I think, um, like, I guess, I guess, as, I guess maybe though in a team game, then that does actually, can actually prevent, yeah, I think you're right. In a team game, it can prevent some other benefit from triggering off a kill move. I may admit, but I think the principle of it, I guess the principle of it is, is resigning bad sportsmanship if resigning has a game effect like does it count as right. an action i guess is the sort of so this sounds to me like it's doing having a, a, a gamey effect on the outcome of uh, yeah the win or whatever um which if it's i mean resigning is there to save time isn't it mm. ultimately and i think if uh obviously in tournament plays evidently you're allowed to resign so it's part of the game uh but if it's not going to take that much longer to play through than perhaps say no one can resign and make sure that everybody accounts for their points. So in Age of Sigmar, um, kill points are often used to resolve ties in standings. So yeah. even if one person has clearly lost, you play to the end as, or as far as you can to get as many kill points as you can because that can have a deciding, yeah, that can be a deciding factor. Um, so it sounds like, I mean, uh, if one player just went, oh, I resign, I deny you those points, then that would seem not great. Uh, yes, you shouldn't be able to do that. Yeah. Well, like, I mean, the answer to that is like, if you resign in the game of X-Wing, mm. you, it counts as a total kill loss food. You just lose all your ships. Yeah, yeah. you lose all your ships. That's the, the way to do it. Yeah. destroyed, basically. Yeah. So, like, your opponent immediately gets all the points. That's the way, that's a good way of doing it. I um, think. Yeah. like, Very so you well. actually don't resign because you want to hold on to some points that might hold you. Yes. Make me, you know, if you win your next game and you're both on the same kill record, it could actually end up winning you, getting your head in the long run. So, yeah, yeah. Um, that's a sort of, um, yeah, I don't know. That's a, it's an interesting conundrum. I think in principle, yeah, resigning's a funny one. Like, I'd always rather play to time mm. than resign, I think, because ultimately people are there to play a game and bringing the game to an end. Obviously, in the exact instance we're talking about, we're talking about in the, the sort of last foregone conclusion, last seconds of a game and exactly when it takes place, which isn't quite the same thing. No. And I do understand conceding, but ultimately everyone's there to play. I think so. But I th- uh, so in casual play, if someone's obviously winning, you can concede to play again <laughs> and re-rack or whatever. Yes. And then th- th- some games can be lost from a very early point and to play for an hour is perhaps just asking too much of the losing player to actually endure for the sake of the other person's enjoyment yeah, as well. I think, I, I do think, yes, there are certainly examples where it's like, oh, this is, or, well, yeah, although you say that, but like, you know, we also said earlier, like, Age of Sigma always play it to the end, things can surprise you. 
which oh, is also true. But what I'm saying is yeah. that the exactly that is it would be impossible to codify in a sort of mm. when is it okay, not when is it not okay sense because you're going to feel it sometimes. Yes, you're going to have that yeah. feeling of like it's round one and I've lost. Yes, and be completely wrong. Yeah, right. Um, and and sometimes you're going to be right. And like, there's no, like, it's not, there's no going to be no general rule that covers every situation. Yeah. Perhaps like in tournament play, people shouldn't be able to resign really. People aren't in AOS, like you're supposed to play to the end. Yeah. The, um, there was, um, like, I can't remember exactly what happened now. There used to be an issue with, um, draws in X-Wing. Right. Uh, where the issue was not resigning, it was the ability to draw a game, mm. um, which led to a, a kind of a scandal when, um, a bunch of players all realized that if they all drew their games, they would all make the cut. Oh, okay. So yeah, it's like yeah. the top eight all playing each other. Mm. Realized that if we all draw, we all go ahead. Yeah. And we shut out everybody else mm. because the point differential means wins losses doesn't matter like we will all end up ahead anyway so they all just agreed ahead of time to draw all of their games mm. um I, i'm pretty sure this is how this ended up working out so they just uh, and that just means not playing the game basically yeah because we you know what they agree to is we'll each fly around in circles and mm-hmm. not shoot each other yeah. for, for, for 75 minutes or we just don't play and sure enough it worked and they effectively gained that position for themselves and shut out every other player in the tournament mm-hmm. and this caused a big uh, eventually uh, uh, fantasy flight just removed draws from the game as a concept um to prevent this from happening again but it, and it, but it created this big debate because that that option was available to them that was a that was a way of gaming the tournament yes um and also like quote unquote sort of saved time <laughs> they didn't yeah, have to yeah. they didn't have to play they went into the top 16 more rested and more able to participate mm-hmm. than they had been if they just played a grueling 75 minute game for that reason. Like from that reason, I think it puts me in the mindset of anything that allows you to play less game doesn't always work to my favor. Like I think the endurance aspect is a part of, mm. of tournament play. And I think you should be playing all of your games until they end according to the rules, right? Mm. Like sport isn't a good analogy, but to the extent that it works, it's happen in sport. Like it does happen in some sports, but you still play matches through. It is still part yeah. of the discipline of sport. Right? There's been some so. uh, very, very interesting occurrences in football where um, there's a reason why at the end of a kind of group stage, all all the people in the group play at exactly the same time, minute minute for minute start time, minute for minute finish time, and uh, that's because people used to get to a situation where if they knew the results of two other games, they would stop trying to win. Or, or they would play for a draw and they would just stop playing and they would just literally, um, both teams would sit back and one team would just pass the ball from among themselves and there, there are a massive, yeah, exactly. a massive paying crowd there watching them do this just because for points wang reasons, it meant that they would get through and other people wouldn't get through. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons it's interesting because it's not the same as a paying crowd, but in a tournament set, I think everybody's paying their to play, right? Yes, of course. Yeah. So if someone wants to play, I think you kind of have to let them, let them I don't know, it's, it's a tricky thing, right? Like, to me, it always comes down to like the resigning as an issue comes down to being a good loser. Mm. And I maintain that being a good loser is one of the most important like social skills that comes with going to tournaments as yeah, a yeah. war game of any kind. Mm. Like if you're not fun to win against, then you're, it creates a really toxic feeling. Mm. Like, yeah. you know, I've, I've encountered, you know, I would say that 
90% of the negative experiences I've had with other people at wargaming events have been people who don't take setbacks well, as opposed to people who gloat when they're winning or right. come unpleasant when they're ahead. Like I've almost never seen that, Yeah, yeah. but you get a lot of like people, you know, you know, kicking tables and pushing things over and throwing, throwing ships across the board and X-wing and stuff. <laughs> really? Yeah. I've well, seen all of these things. Goodness. Um, like, and that creates a negative thing. Cause it's like, we're trying to play a game. Like, yeah, yeah. and, and I guess I see resigning in some cases as being a bit like a rage quit kind of a thing. It's like, I'm just out, whatever, hmm. you know, like, I, I don't think I would ever concede. Cause it's, it's like, not only, not cause you always have a chance at winning, but like, let's play it through. Yeah. Let's see what happens. Like, if you don't enjoy the basic interactions of the game, the sort of rolling dice and seeing what happens and the hmm. moment to moment stuff, then I think maybe sometimes you've lost sight of what the game's actually about. Like, let's see if the hero, like, you know, maybe it mattered in a tournament sense that your judicator could make the crazy trick shot where he kills both the Gaunt and the Ogwatarmaturge. Right. It wasn't going to make a huge difference to that game. No, no. But, um, but it was, was still worth doing for the moment. There's a point in that game where I could have slow played for a draw. You could have which, which was an interesting moment, I thought, in terms of like how other players might play that. Oh, yeah, right at the end. Yeah, yeah so there's 11 minutes left. And if I'd just taken ages to take my turn, it would have been 2-2. It's a draw. Which obviously isn't the way to play it. You've got to play the game. But, no, uh, I mean, I think a lot of tournaments would have a a, a, um, a, a stipulation against slow play. I'd hope so, yeah. 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 Uh, but still, it could be hard to judge. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I think, I think in our case, it wouldn't have been hard to judge. No. Because you had like one unit <laughs> right. left and you can't, what reasonable uh, defense this really could you detailed. mount? <laughs> like, of why it's taking you 10 minutes to it's move. It's really important. Three liberate, three studios. Really important that I get that line of sight. Just gotta measure it. I gotta measure it again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so on. I don't know. It's just like, like tabletop games against strangers is such a mesh of, um, complex kind of personality clashes or they can be mm. that I think just working on your own, how, how do I become fun to play with and pleasant and, mm. you know, reasonable and open? Like I'll put it this way. Like we both experienced this, like, and this is again, not a fault of player. Those hide and F deep can dice are incredibly hard. To oh read. yeah. Those are like terrible. this was a weird situation because they, so they have the special edition hide and F deep can dice, which like the Zinch dice and the Nurgle dice really hard to read. Yeah. I think those dice are fun. And I use them for destiny dice because mm. they get rolled once they get set to the side. You never have to read them quickly ever. No, that's what they're for. I really strongly recommend against using those dice for regular play. I agree. <laughs> um, because you can't fucking read them and your opponent definitely can't read them. Mm. And the Aydna Deepkin dice are perfectly translucent, clear squares mm. with extremely fine blue lines drawn on them. Yes. Like I couldn't tell. And obviously I trust my opponent and I do trust my opponent because there were times when he would roll 20 dice and I would go, Oh, that looks bad for me. And he would go, Oh, that's terrible. And what loads of the things I thought were fours were twos. Yeah. You know, and I had no idea at uh, all same, what was going on. Same here. Yeah. But the issue with that is it creates a kind of weird atmosphere through the whole game mm. because like, I don't know anything about how my opponent's rolls are going. I'm just being told what the results are yeah, and assuming yeah. that it's true. Like the good thing about war games is that they create these moments of kind of absolute clarity where you can commiserate someone on their good, on their bad dice or go like, Oof, that was good or whatever. Mm. But the dice, at least the rules are a kind of shared reference point. Yes. Anything that obfuscates that, I find that super. Kind it also, of like, it uh, takes loads of the drama out of the game. Just, I mean, the, the, I, 
take I take loads of dramatic interest in what my opponent is rolling for their yeah, hit yeah. rolls and for their save rolls and like I'm leaning over and I'm like really interested in how this is going to go and those little moments spikes of drama and the, those dice are awful like they're they're completely unreadable I mean um, also slows the game down because the player has to squint down at them and actually like look really closely at what each one of them are and yeah definitely I mean they're terrible for for quick play for tournament play yeah yeah and for, for any sort of social play really I appreciate we've we've gotten off topic of resigning into just sort of like how to just general how to make better yeah tournaments I think um, I'm going to get some movement trays um, for London GT although I can't use them for everything because snaking horrors around to block stuff off it's is a big thing isn't it is a big thing but things like that things like pre-measuring dice bags uh, yes. Like, I'm gonna, I've got my dice in little drawstring bags, and I, I, I'm gonna make sure I know exactly how many are in each bag. Oh, yeah. So that when I need 40 dice, I know that this bag is 40 dice. Mm. So I'm gonna separate some out. And then double check, but. Yeah. Like, the moment I always feel most self-conscious is when I'm counting out dice. Mm. Cause I wanna be right, but there's a moment of like, it takes a little bit of time to like yeah. count 37 dice out of a bag, right? Like, but I always find it's clear when, you group them on the table because yeah. your opponent can see, oh, that's five, that's five, that's five, that's yeah, five. Yeah, you do that, but still, that's yeah, like yeah. maybe a minute and a half. Of, yeah, sure. I'm just getting dice out of a bag. Which yeah, can feel a bit sort of like that's 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 everyone that expects that to happen. I think yeah. everyone, I think everyone would prefer that they can clearly see you're counting out the dice correctly and doing everything mm. properly. And also that the dice aren't completely obscured by their own <laughs> iconography or whatever. Like. Yes, by their own very identity as transparent cubes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> when their yeah. only purpose is to be rolled and read, <laughs> one of those purposes has failed. Yeah, definitely, definitely. We should move on to another question, but the ongoing subject of etiquette, basically, is, yes. is a really good one. I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Peter Fanier from Discord, with his fifteenth question in a row, writes in with nice. greetings, masters of the law door. I'd like you to. I'd like this month. I'd like to ask you: Is there a real issue with law being changed? Lots of people seem to take a big issue with the relatively recent reworking of the Necrons from slaves of the Catan to bonkers cyber kings who have enslaved the Catan and generally have a lot more going on in their social calendars. Is it just classic internet overreaction, or does changing fairly large parts of the law actually have any negative effects? I don't mind law retcons. And I don't have to stress out about them. And I remember seeing, uh, I think actually fairly recently there was perhaps a games workshop writer actually did a, uh, like an AMA or a QA or yeah. something like that where they said they talked about law in terms of themes rather than historical events. And, uh, what you're trying to evoke is, is the theme of an army or the theme of a, a people rather than trying to establish a kind of tapestry of historical happenings that all fiction must adhere to and uh 40k always raises this problem because it's 30 years of accumulated interlinked fiction and there's going to be mistakes there's going to be contradictions and i think it's fine to move past those contradictions and actually say is it cooler that necrons are mad insane king dudes rather than kind of slaves with no personality uh is it is that cooler then let's do that (laughs) instead of the thing that was boring (laughs) yeah i find this really interesting there's this is a trend. Like, I also don't have a problem with it as long as it results in a more interesting theme or yes. a more interesting thrust of the story. It's nice when things can be kind of linked together because otherwise you don't have a story. Like, things have to have stakes. You know, things have to kind mm. of mean something. Um, but things are allowed to change. There's, like, obviously a retcon is one thing and an evolving story is another thing. So the two sides to this, maybe one of them is the Necron thing, which is genuinely a retcon. In some cases, it's sort of... um 
one of the things where it's sort of like the door is left slightly open. So if you want to do your own Necron army, there are slaves of the Catan that is possible within the law. So sure. sort of like a, a an obvious sideways shift designed to bring about a new way of telling those stories, mm. but not completely incompatible with the old one. And then other things are things like the Primara Space Marines, right? The kind of like the change in the notion that new space marines can't be made hmm. like or new, new kinds, like the GNC can't be perfected more, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so that, and that ties into the sort of worry about things changing. And I think stories should definitely be allowed to change. Hmm. And, and to be honest, like I would always prefer storytellers feel, feel like they have the freedom to make changes if it's right for the yeah. fiction. I mean, if, I'm, I, I miss the wood elves from the old world, for example, and I loved all the characters the part of the Wood Elf faction. Um, but I think the Sylvaneth are awesome. And there's loads of kind of cool, like they're so much more visually inventive in lots of different ways. Yeah. Um, I'm really glad that they, that, that they were allowed to grow into that and like Wood Elves could become a thing still. I mean, of their own, if, if you wanted them to. There's a, it's funny, like there's a drive to systematize fiction, which I think is pretty fundamentally incompatible with art. Not to say that like Warhammer backstories are art necessarily, hmm. but, um, or even artistry, right? Like mm. the Horus Heresy novels needed the freedom to reinvent big chunks of the Imperium and add depth and humanity to them. One of the reasons that they are better as standalone novels than a lot of Warhammer fiction is because they have a lot more freedom to add characters like remembrances and things yeah, like yeah. bring in all totally. this interesting stuff. Um, and, uh, because the freedom was afforded them to tell interesting stories, which mm-hmm. is again, maybe links back to something we were saying earlier. Like, but there is, I think, particularly in like, um, genre fiction or in kind of geek culture and things, a drive to like systematize more than, um, appreciate the kind of like, I don't know the best way to describe it, like sort of a bit more free form, a bit less, uh, more like analog storytelling where things are less bound to rules. Mm. Like it's very much like a product of the last, maybe to put my, it's more of a books hat on than a wargaming hat on, but like, it feels like it's a very much a product of like the last century. Like prior to, you know, the kind of formal invention of science fiction and fantasy, almost all forms of, you know, uh, you know, fiction was a lot looser. Like, and if you go back to, you know, uh, sort of or- the origins of, of fantasy, if you take it back through Tolkien to middle and old English literature, then themes, m- um, are, you know, mm. told and retold and kind of remixed and, and, and adapted in lots of different ways constantly. And I have to admit, like, I, I kind of suspect that there are probably, there are probably generations of monks transcribing this stuff going, like, actually, I think you'll find this didn't happen. <laughs> like, my, uh, Lancelot didn't go there. Uh, this time he couldn't have done, he was here, you know, but people don't forget that. People f- have forgotten that probably because it wasn't important. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Like, um, and, I see this everywhere now. Like it's actually a real pet peeve of mine. Like I think, um, as much as I like video games, I mm. think video game language and logic has fundamentally hurt storytelling in some ways mm. or like hurt how storytelling is received. Like if you, what, if you read like, uh, uh, discussions about, um, star Wars or Marvel or stuff like, online the language of video games from things being overpowered or underpowered or the the sort of systemization of like uh action in action films mm. all comes down to this kind of weird like uh logic like 
uh, you know, this desire to kind of categorize and, and find spaces for everything. Mm. And this definitely applies to Warhammer fiction as well. Yeah. Although it's maybe more, more, more applicable to Warhammer because it's literally divided from a game system. But I find that really kind of like, I want things to be able to be flexible, right? Like mm. I want things to be able to be surprising or kind of not, or uh, subversive or to undermine your expectations, which is what a good law change allows you to do, mm. right? Like a good law change allows you to come back to, I don't know, the Necrons. Like Necrons went, the, and also there's always this hypocritical element. Necrons at one point in the early days of Rogue Trader were chaos androids. Right. Right. That no one remembers, no one cares about that now, right? Like they, things change and like, you know, and people come back to the idea and go, actually that's dumb. What if they're mindless slaves to kind of our version of Lovecrafty and old ones? And then people go, actually that's kind of been done. What if they are, um, people whose, the price of their uprising was too high, but they managed to enslave their own gods. Mm. That's more interesting. Mm. You know, it just like, it progresses as people kind of revisit the idea and make it better. Sorry, I've, this has turned into a rant, but like, basically, yeah, like, you pe- I think as a general rule, fans need to be more willing to let go of aspects of things and sort of entertain the benefits of change. What I'm saying is change is good. Vote, <laughs> votes each. Votes each every day. <laughs> Yeah, I, I like. I, you need to give new writers room as well. Like one of the reasons why I think Sphere of Shadows is the best AOS book I've read so far is that they're allowed to invent new types of character that aren't going to be models. They're just literally just mm. people in between the models, in between the model ranges, and they could all become units, I suppose. But it's, it's not the purpose of the thing. The purpose of the thing is to create cool characters and a cool universe to actually with new ideas and new conflicts that you can buy into. And uh, that's kind of what fiction's good for. You want to. Yeah, exactly. Interesting characters. Like, I feel like, um, this is something I meant to mention earlier, actually. It's maybe slightly left, slight tangent, but like, I feel like, um, games have actually become a bit more sensitive to how people kind of want to use their stuff and their factions and their stories mm. rather than how they actually do and a bit more sensitive to this. One thing that starts me from the Ideneth battle term, which I really like, is, um, uh, all of the references, apart from the War Scroll itself, there's loads of references in the book to Achillean queens. Right. There's no model for an Achillean queen, but it establishes that an Achillean queen is something that exists in the fiction that's mm. the same as an Achillean king. And because there are plenty of female Ideneth bits, if you want to, uh, like make a kit bash, a, a female, um, Achillean king for your army, it's supported by the fiction in the book. Mm. It's supported by the war scroll. It's supported by all of the language that's used in that part of the book. Mm. Good. You know, it kind of opens that, it keeps that door open in a way that doesn't need to then be kind of retconned when someone with a more, like a, a critical eye mm. comes back to it later. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's, um, that's good. Like, often these changes are just there to fix stuff that wasn't as interesting as it could be. Yeah. It's not bad. I mean, what's really lost? You know, when the retcon happens, what's really lost? You still had the pleasure of the fiction at the time. You still have the memories of engaging in yeah, that absolutely. fiction. What is, what's really gone away? You know, uh, you, you still have the memories of having a wood elf army and having, and being in that old world. And now you can, I mean, I, I, I kind of, I also felt the angst of it going away to an extent, but I, it, what really matters about that, you know? Yeah, I think, I mean, like, people, I think nostalgia is a powerful draw for people. Yeah. People feel very anchored in, and I think, you know, a, a pretty negative force in geek culture generally is a desire to recreate the conditions of the thing you loved when you were a teenager, mm. rather than, and like, oh, rather than 
find a way of enjoying it as an adult, if that makes sense. Mm. Like, and that's definitely, that's definitely a factor in, in, in Warhammer and, and in many other things. And I think it's not that that's necessarily unhealthy all the time, but like a lot of more recent or, or better storytelling comes when adults approach this stuff and go, actually, what is interesting about this? Because mm. you, what you want when you're a teenager is very different. You know, like if that were the case, then every Warhammer book would just be about big space marine dreadnoughts punching things. Mm. And those books exist. And that's fine. You know, they should exist. But like, like again, to return to Horus Heresy, that, that's kind of a story that could have been told in a lot of different ways. And it's a surprisingly, um, sort of mature and character focused yep. story. <clears throat> I think as a consequence of it being a product of a mature fiction that then has goes through its kind of juvenile phase and then has, um, mature writers come to it and go, okay, let's pull out themes from this. Let's mm. invest this with themes. Let's invest this with characters. And that's only a good thing. Mm. And if it challenges your understanding of the simpler stuff, then good. Basically. Indeed. Our final question uh, comes from Drew, who writes, Hi, Tom and Chris. Oh, no, what have I done? I've booked to attend both days of Warhammer Fest in May. I want to see the Golden Demon entries, but other than that, have I made a terrible mistake? Do you have any suggestions for a slightly more retiring individual attending two days of all the Warhams? Thanks for the good pods, Drew. Uh, so we went for one day last year. Yeah. And... I think we got as much as we were going to get out of it in that day. So I think to do more, you might want to play some games or something, or maybe join us. Yeah, I think around there. I think. I think also, like, so Rico Arena is a little bit out of the way, but it's not miles out of the way. Mm. I think. Uh, so not quite the same thing, but like I did like three days at Rezd this year, um, and the games show. And the nice thing about having more time is you are not in a rush. Yeah. You don't have to book out your time quite so much. You can take it a little bit easier. It's a holiday, right? Like if you're booking out time to do this, mm. it's break from whatever it is you do the rest of the time. And if that's the case, then it's perfectly reasonable to like, you know, have a lie in on the second day or <laughs> knock yeah. off early to go for a pint on the first day, like whatever, right? Like mm. treat it as holiday time. I think there's a temptation to treat everything as work <laughs> to be like, okay, got to see this, got to see this, got to do this. Um, sort of doing what you could do in a single day but just slowly mm. is actually i think quite nice it's quite chilled out especially with so many painting competitions around the with the golden demon happening yeah could have spent some more time around those cabinets i think it's, it's helpful if you've got like you know if you know some other people there mm. but like it does take the pressure off. i think there's the other way to see it is like it takes the pressure off tremendously yeah like you know pass like your time so that if you want to buy a particular limited edition thing get there early mm. if you want to play the new thing whatever that is do that yeah whenever but but other than that just like you know and if you get run out of stuff to do you get bored you're allowed to leave <laughs> you can go do something else it's definitely worth chatting to the games workshop staff there they're super nice and uh you'll find loads of designers including people who have been there for many many years and actually responsible probably responsible for many of the model ranges you've most loved <laughs> so it's definitely worth even as a retiring person like just they're so polite and good that i it's it's it's, it'll be a nice chat. You'll have some nice chats. Yeah. Like predict. Have nice chats. Have nice chats with And, ask, and, and talk to people as well. That's the yeah, totally. It's yeah. like everyone there shares something in common. Mm. Absolutely. And it's probably Warhammer. <laughs> You'd hope. And why else would you go there? <laughs> You're a very good painter. You live there. I don't know. Mm, true. But yeah, no, I think I think have a good time. I, I'd go for two days if I could spare it. Yeah. 
Maybe I'll get to go this year. Hmm. 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 Going to be a very busy minis month for the both of us, I think. I think so. But we'll be back at the end of May with presumably loads of news and reports from London GT. Nice. And you and I will actually probably play a 2000 point game by then. Yeah, hopefully. We'll have a Star Trek. Yeah. Going to get that dude finished. Star Trek Watch 2018. It comes to an end. <laughs> it's there now. Yeah, the watch is over. If Thank you keep God. watching it, that's weird. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if you'd like to send us a question for next month's episode, you can do so by emailing us at miniatures at crateandcrowbar.com. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at minis monthly. And we each have miniatures centric Instagram accounts. We What's do. Yours, Tom? Uh, I'm at, uh, Ludo Paints Minis. That's L-U-D-O Paints Minis. And I'm at Exit Warp. That's E-X-I-T-W-A-R-P. Marvellous. Thanks, Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>